Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Break the Rules. I am your host, Lev Polyakov, a.k.a. Lefpo on Twitter, and we have a fantastic panel for you. These are the, are the all-stars we are bringing here to you all the way live, all the way live, all the way live. I love these two guys over here. We have Alexander Bard. We have Arash Kolaki, uh, two Iranians. I, well, one honorary Iranian, and we could go a little bit about that later on. One thing I want to say real quick, we are going to be having Super Chats today, guys. So make sure you send in your Super Chats, send in your questions, so I could all just take them in one big pile and take the best ones and ask them uh, later on. We are also going to have the lovely Afina Hayat and Giant Geo entering here. In fact, uh, Geo is entering right now. And don't forget to subscribe, all the newcomers, all the new people. Thank you so much, and let's get this started. So... As we all know, uh, there were some uh, tumultuous things going on yesterday, and I think all these point to uh, certain inherent situations, uh, certain, um, what do you call it, uh, certain root causes that I think need to be uh, addressed. So the first thing that I want to ask to uh, Arash is, what do you think these root causes are, and how would you address them to make a better society? Ooh, great question. Um... Well, I think in a lot of ways, our society is, uh, you know, very broken. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you look at economically, uh, people are, are suffering greatly uh, and has been the case, uh, you know, progressively since the 40s uh, here in the United States, at least uh, with income uh, and the, and the uh, cost of living uh, constantly increasing while income has, has remained stagnant. Um, uh, many uh, jobs have gone offshore uh, and um, the political arena as well is also uh, extremely alienating. Uh, I think people don't feel particularly heard. Um, representative democracy, uh, in my opinion, is, is not uh, working in a fulfilling way to satisfy uh, the desires of most people. I feel most people feel alienated both economically and politically. Um, and these are some of the ramifications that we're seeing. Uh, you know, I think there's, there's just a, a general um, disillusionment with, with society and neither political party is really addressing it. Um, you know, uh, here in the US, uh, it, both Republicans and Democrats you know, are, are very much owned and controlled by uh, corporations. Um, and uh, that's reflected in, you know, the very paper thin differences that we get uh, between, you know, the different administrations that we have here. Uh, I don't think they really go far enough to, um, to serve uh, the, the desires of, of society. Uh, and I think those are some of the root causes. I think um, there's a lot, and, and obviously I hope we're going to get into what a good society might look like, which, you know, is kind of the topic of this. Um, I think there's a lot we can do to kind of move society uh, politically, economically, culturally into better directions, uh, into more fulfilling directions, into less alienating or less oppressive ones. And uh, Alexander, uh, well, how about this, actually, because we didn't have that much of a chance uh, to get Arash's vision, and it's probably going to take uh, a bit longer to get everything hashed out. Would you be able to say in short, Arash, before I go to Alexander, uh, if, if that's possible, what your vision would uh, look like? 
Well, why don't we wait with that? I can, I can just give you a comment because I think Arash was absolutely right. But I have okay. a, a, a couple of funny comments here. Number one, America picked Cartman from South Park as president four years ago. They voted for Donald Trump because he was anti-establishment and he was a television star. And I think the way to go for a complete nutter narcissist was to try to imitate the storming of the Bastille. And of course, it failed. Uh, you know, it was a TV show. That's the way I see it. But, but I think uh, Arash is absolutely right by everything he says. This is actually both the proper Marxist analysis of the state of North America. It's also interesting of Steve Bannon's view. And I think uh, there are two reasons why Donald Trump didn't win again, because he would have otherwise, because Biden was a weak candidate from the establishment. And of course, he mishandled COVID-19, meaning all the other voters he won this time around, even more than last time, the Latinos and the gays voted for Trump, but he lost the older white vote. Why? Because he completely mishandled the COVID-19 pandemic and Biden seemed more credible and therefore he won the election. The other thing in this, that Marx, it, no, it's Marx, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good Freudian slip here. Uh, Trump had a really smart advisor last election called Steve Bannon, and Steve Bannon was not part of the team this time because Trump's ego was just too big. And I think if Bannon had been around, uh, Trump had stood a much better chance of winning the second election. So I, I think that you can add that to Arash's view as well, meaning at best, last night was the end of the 2010s and the echo chamber society. And I think uh, winners that will come out of this eventually are people like Tulsi Gubbard that have been, you know, she's a Democrat, but she speaks to a lot of Republican voters. She's both working class, outsider, woman, Hawaiian, military, whatever. I think people like her will be much more important in the next four years and I'll be completely underrated. And, and, and I think people like that who can speak to the entire, the entire country now outside of the echo chambers will gain more traction and more ground because we're getting tired of this sort of, Antifa versus the, the Trumpists sort of conflicts now. They, they're getting boring, to be honest about it. And they're not speaking to the problems of the country at all. Arash, before we uh, detail your vision, would you agree with uh, what Alexander had to say? Um, I'd say I'd agree with, with large parts of it. Um, I don't really know I, I would agree with Steve Bannon if he's uh, necessarily someone who at least has a he may have actually, you know, it may be correct that he would have helped Trump win. And, and I do agree that Trump probably would have won uh, had he not mishandled the pandemic. Uh, but I also think his vision, uh, Bannon's vision is not one that is, and I guess we'll get to that as I kind of talk about what I think would be a good direction to go. Uh, and then I'll, I'll say why it wouldn't be a good direction to go. Um, so, uh, so maybe that could just kind of spell out. And I'm going to try to do it really concisely. Um, I, I have kind of like seven um, kind of overarching ideals that I talk about uh, when I talk about a good direction for society to go to. I'm only going to talk about two of them um, because it's just, it's just going to be too much. And I just think that's enough to kind of cover for today. So I think a good place to start when thinking about what a good society might look like is to start with human nature, um, because obviously we're talking about humans. Uh, we're not talking about a society of robots. We're not talking about a society of ants, paint pigeons. Uh, we're talking about a society for humans. And so the question that we should ask ourselves is what does it mean to be human? Um, and one of the foundational uh, and defining aspects of, of humanity is our consciousness, right? It's 
uh, our ability to separate our thoughts from our actions, right? So what does that mean? That means in our mind's eye, we can think for ourselves, uh, we can weigh options, we can recall memories from the past and lessons we've learned, we can uh, perceive you know, our options in the present and amazingly, we could also forecast our, our actions. We can kind of predict what our actions might do in the future, right? And so exercising our consciousness um, to our actions is a very natural source of human fulfillment, right? And that's, that's where I think freedom comes from, uh, the drive for freedom to be able to free, be free to live our lives how we see fit and how we can be fulfilled um, and, and to make decisions and to have a say in the decisions that affect our lives, right? Um, so uh, one of the pillars would be just that, right? Uh, a society, I think a good society should allow for freedom and for liberation, right? Allow people to live their lives, to make decisions for themselves as, as how they see fit to, to find their own fulfillment in life. But we also not just want that for ourselves, we also want it for others, right? We want others to also be free. And so how do we reconcile our freedom with others, uh, others' freedom? Uh, to me, uh, what makes sense to me would be that uh, people in an ideal society, people should have a say in the decisions that affect them in proportion to the degree that it affects them. So, and I feel the reason I'm saying that's an ideal is that because that allows for the maximization of everyone's freedom while allowing for situations where if I'm doing something that's affecting you, well then at that point, at that point and only at that point, should you now have a say in that, right? So to kind of put it into context of examples, you know, let's say you want to paint your bedroom purple. I don't think anybody should have the right to tell you, you can't do that. It doesn't affect anybody else. Um, and you should be free <laughs> to do what makes you happy in your home. Uh, and let's say your neighbor wants to put a, a barrel of grains in the backyard. I don't think anybody should tell them they can't do that, right? Uh, it doesn't bother you. It doesn't affect you. It's just, you know, people should be free to do what they want. But let's say your neighbor wants to put some radioactive waste in their backyard, which is, you know, has like radiation that's now causing your family cancer. So only at that point where now somebody is doing that it's actually having an effect on you, should you now be able to have a say in that matter and be like, well, I'd rather not die of cancer. So please don't store this in your backyard, right? So to maximize freedom for everyone, for ourselves and for everybody else, right? We have to reconcile uh, everyone's freedom with a concept of democracy. And to me, that ideal means people having a say in proportion, in proportion to the degree they are affected by decisions if a decision only affects me, only I have a say. If it only affects Alexander, only Alexander should have a say, and so on and so forth, right? So that's kind of uh, the first kind of pillar of what I think a good society would have, right? I think a good society should allow people to be free, uh, to live their lives, and be unencumbered by, you know, bureaucracy and uh, the effect, you know, other people having control over their lives, especially when it doesn't affect them, right? Which is kind of the corollary, right? If, it, if uh, we can only have 
saying a decision that when it affects us, then that's also true for other people, right? So other people should not have a right to have a say in the decisions that affect our lives if it doesn't affect them. Um, and these are sort of, again, like the foundations of uh, coming from you know, human consciousness, the foundations of the concepts of freedom versus slavery and why innately humans are meant to be free in that sense, right? Or we're meant to have a conscious say in the things that affect us and to, and to be able to live our lives uh, freely. So that's the first one. Uh, the second pillar um, is also, uh, I like to talk about it from a place of also being kind of enlightened by an understanding of human nature as well. Uh, and I would call this fairness, you know, justice, equity, whatever you might want to call it. Um, and this comes, and this stems from our evolutionary biology of being a social species uh, and growing uh, and evolving as a species in conjunction with others, right? And as a result, we have an innate um, understanding of consciousness, not just in ourselves, but in others, right? So in other words, if I, ha if I have an understanding that I have agency in my actions, I also have the understanding that other people also have an agency in their actions. So if I'm walking down the street and, a, you know, minding my own business, I'm not bothering anybody and a random person just punches me in the face, I understand that that, that other person is a conscious being and has decided to punch me in the face um, unprovoked for no reason. And I might think to myself, and I probably would think to myself, well, this is unjust. This is not cool, right? Not fair. Um, so our understanding of agency in ourselves and agency in others is sort of kind of like the root of where our concept of fairness or justice or equity or whatever we call it comes from. Um, and so to kind of just extrapolate on that a little bit, um, you know, uh, in that example I gave, I, I think it really kind of comes down to two really simple or basic concepts. One is that, you know, being punished uh, you know, or rewarded for something we have no control over, right? So like something like the color of our skin or where we just happen to be born or whatever the case may be, something that is beyond our control to be like punished for something like that. Um, I think it's pretty non-controversial to say, okay, well, that would be unjust or unfair because we had no control over that. And yet we are being uh, treated in a, in, a, in a different manner. We're being punished for that, right? Uh, and then the second concept of equity or justice or fairness is that um, there should be some sort of uh, correlation uh, between the benefits and the burdens of our relationships with one another, right? So this could be a personal relationship with, a, with an intimate relationship, a friend. It could be a, a relationship in society through the political sphere. It could be cultural. It could be economic. In, in any type of relationship, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure if you kind of look back at some relationships you have, may have had yourselves, if the lion's share of the benefit of that relationship is going to one person or one party or one group, and the overwhelming uh, lion's share of the burden of that relationship or um, uh, the uh, 
uh, difficulty of that relationship or the work of that relationship or whatever have you falls on another person or group or party or whatever, well, we would think to ourselves, well, that probably is not a fair or equitable uh, relationship, right? Because there's a, there's a uh, disconnect between, um, you know, what we had control over in that relationship, right? And uh, the level of, uh, uh, um, what do we call it? The, the The benefits, right? And, and the burdens, right? So if like, if you're putting in, you know, 99.9% of the work or the, or the burden of a relationship, but 99.9% of all the benefit of that relationship is going to somebody else, uh, that would feel naturally would feel like unfair. Um, so these are two of kind of like seven um, kind of what I like to call ideals of what a good society might have. Um, to recap, we want to, I think we would want a society that is uh, free that allows people to live their lives in freedom, uh, not just for themselves, but for others. And so uh, I believe that a good society will allow people to have a say, a fair say in the decisions that affect their lives. The second thing uh, I, I would add is that a good society should inherently and structurally be fair, equitable. Um, and, um, and of course I have you know, others, uh, if you, if, you know, interested in more depth, like on Twitter, on my pinned uh, tweet, I, I have a list of seven kind of ideals, and these are just the first two. Uh, but I think just even with these first two, if we look at society right now, um, if we look at uh, the world we live in, if we look at uh, our own countries, um, we're, it's a radical departure uh, from either of these ideals. So I think the first question is, do we agree um, that people should have a fair say in the decision of their lives, so that people should be free or that society should be fair? If the answer to that is yes, okay. Then the next question is, let's look at our societies. Are they fulfilling these things? Uh, certainly in the United States, um, you know, we talked about like the political arena. Uh, it's certainly not, um, uh, democratic in that sense, right? I think uh, the reason why our political institutions are so alienating is because ex it's exactly the opposite. People don't feel like they're engaging or participating in the political process and actually have a say in the decisions that affect them. And, and for that matter, um, you know, if you look at how, uh, to me, a good society would be a much more participatory uh, society versus a much the much more alienating kind of representative democracy that we have. I believe, you know, extrapolating from what we talked about, if a decision only affects your neighborhood, well, that's something that your neighborhood can decide. Um, we don't need, you know, the state to tell us how to run a thing that only affects our particular neighborhood, right? If a decision only affects your state, only your state should have a say. Or if it's a decision that affects the whole country, okay, fine. That's a decision for the whole country to decide. But I think organizing society in a sort of nested uh, uh, sort of bodies that embody uh, this ideal, I think would be a much better direction to go uh, than what we have now. It's also true. So that's the economic sphere. I think if we look at the political sphere, it's a very uh, similar, similar situation, right? Um, I mean, internally capitalism uh, capitalist workplaces are top-down authoritarian workplaces. They certainly don't embody 
this concept of participatory democracy. Um, externally, markets uh, also fail to uh, give people a say in the decisions that affect them. In that example we talked about with the neighbor storing radioactive waste um, in their backyard and it's affecting you and causing cancer to you. Well, according to uh, you know markets, uh, a buy in a market system, the buyer and seller ultimately decide regardless of who else is affected. Um, and that becomes a problem when, you know, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of transactions, uh, buyers and sellers get to determine uh, whether transactions occur ir irregardless of the, its effects on others. And so that's why we have uh, so much, for example, like environmental uh, degradation because of capitalism, because the whole world could be affected by something, but they get no say, right? So, so internally, capitalism violates uh, these norms. It's also uh, unfair and, and uh, it doesn't reward people for, um, uh, I talked about, you know, uh, a good society would be equitable, would reward people uh, uh, equitably. So the benefits, so there should be some proportionality between the benefits and burdens, right? So I think a good society, you know, working hard, uh, effort, sacrifice into uh, your economic activities, right? So long as these are like socially valued economic activities uh, should be rewarded, right? So, uh, uh, but capitalism doesn't do that, unfortunately. Capitalism rewards bargaining power. Um, so- Aras, can I just break in here? Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't go on for too long because I, I think there's so many things to bring up here that we could all discuss rather than you just going on here doing a monologue. Yeah, I was actually pretty uh, much done. So I think oh, okay, okay. Uh, yeah. But I, then I can give you a question right away and then you can finish, no problem at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem here is though, I agree with you with the class analysis and that is the basic problem in North America. And I agree as a European philosopher, I would see it, all of that. It, it's, it's a site of enormous class differences. But when it comes to the issues from the very beginning, you always arrive at a point where somebody has to be the judge and decide these things. And, and as far as we know, we have courts. Americans use them all the time. See you in court is a typically American expression. It's a very expensive way of running a society. It's rarely fair, but it's the way America is used to theocracy. It's run by lawyers, right? So that's the way you do it when states and markets uh, uh, when you say the market is very strong in America, the state is weak in different ways or it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And then you got the courts. The problem with all your ideas, though, I would say is that you got to arrive at a certain point where somebody gets to decide. Because mm. the idea that with these extreme examples, you get radioactive waste in the garden mm. or it's just about the paint inside your floor. Well, the paint on the outside of the house, for example, in the neighborhood is something neighbors will very much have an opinion about. And those are more interesting questions because then you arrive at the judgment point, who mm. gets to decide. And that's when societies get really complex and really difficult and it gets costly. Absolutely. And I, I, think, I think the world you, you arrive at here is, is, is naive if that is not taken into account because that has to be responded to. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, 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 mean? think any, I think in any uh, society, uh, there would have to be a mechanism as you, as you describe of adjudication, right? Of conflict resolution. Um, what I'm talking about though is, is not at the exclusion of that. What I'm talking about is that the, the decision-making norms of that society, right? Whether it's how laws are decided or how the most important decisions that affect your life, how those decisions are made, 
um, should be, in my opinion, uh, done by those who are most affected by those decisions. So I'm not saying that this is a complete- But who, who gets to decide who's the most okay, affected? So, this so, is okay, precisely so where naivety right. comes into the picture. That's Absolutely. an so, proposition, yeah. Okay, so the first who question- Who gets to decide that? Because it's an interactive relationship. I agree, I agree. Yeah. So, so the first question is, is this ideal uh, worthy? Okay, so if you're saying, yes, I think it's a good ideal, if we can move society in a more free and more liberatory uh, direction, that's a good thing. If you agree with that, so then the next question is, how do we implement it? No, right? it depends on the cost. It depends on, okay. You can make a totalitarian also, society being libertarian for sure, but okay. then it becomes totalitarian. It's an enormous cost to actually pay. I'm not buying that, you, that they, we would have freedom from things at any cost. Just like mm -hmm. I'm not buying that people can have freedom to certain things at any cost, mm -hmm. but freedom to and freedom from are different things. And at the end of the day, this is a balancing act and it mm -hmm. also has to be sustainable okay. because all the things you're talking about actually are in the US constitution. America could be all those things you're talking about. The question is the rather pragmatic one. Why isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, well, <laughs> okay. Let's, there's a lot of questions there. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a lot of questions there. So, yeah. so I think, if, if we agree that people are more fulfilled when they have a say in the decisions that affect their lives, if that's an agreement, yeah. then the next question would be, how do we move society in that direction? Okay, so I agree with you that there will never be a society that is 100% gets the calculus of proportionate say correct. Okay, I doubt there will ever be this such a society. The question is, is that how do we move our societal institutions closer to that ideal? Okay, I'm not saying that we will ever have perfection. What I'm saying is that's the direction to go. And the closer we get, the better. So if that's something we agree upon, then the next conversation should be how do we alter our society's so social institutions or political institutions to better reflect that? Okay. Well, you can't do that before you answer the question of the freedom to, freedom from, which really here is well, quality of opportunity versus a quality of outcome. And that's an enormous difference in a complex society like ours. So, well, well, like, yeah, I, for I example, mean, yeah. I love Marx, but I hate Rousseau. So I, I, I love the heroic perspective of giving everybody the chance that it's somehow similar in life to succeed. But I'm not buying the current sort of woke thing with a quality of outcome at all. And like most Marxists actually- Well, so I'm not, I don't advocate that either. No, okay, so I, I then, we, then, we, then we agree, but the, 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 that's a typical example of something you have to solve before you make the move you just suggested. Right, so, okay. So what I think, what I think is, for example, in the US, okay, we have uh, a certain political structure, correct? We have certain political institutions, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the presidency, the Congress, and so on and so forth. Okay, can we move those uh, to better reflect this ideal? And I think the answer to that is yes. Can we have nested councils, a system of nested councils, so that people can start engaging much more locally, right, in the decisions that affect their own communities, right, under the ideal that if a decision only affects your community, only you and your community should make that decision. And only when that decision uh, 
affects other communities, does it get bumped up to the next level? Can we- Who can decides we that? Again, you're leaving the problem in the air. I, I, I can give you a proposal okay, here. So let me, let me answer, yeah, let me, let, let me, if, if let me just answer look, directly. Yeah, but if you look at the United States, so you look at the United States and China and Brazil and Russia and India, why do, what do these five empires today have in common? Enormous class differences. So I think what you're proposing, actually, I would be more than happy if somebody made a Brexit in North America. Mm. So one of the states of, of the United States left the United States, went independent and tried a different model. I think that's the best thing that could ever happen. So that's why I'm enthusiastic about Brexit, because mm. I, th I think the smaller the unit is, rather than everything being run from Washington, D.C. and maybe Silicon Valley, like America's now, the harder it is to get over these enormous class differences that North America has. Mm -hmm. yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah. But to, to answer your question about who decides, I think that um, first we establish the ideal, okay? Then we have to determine if we can have societal institutions that better approximate that. Let me exaggerate to make a point, okay? Let's say, let's say we're looking at a dictatorship, right? It's, it's pretty non-controversial to say, okay, well, in a dictatorship, you get virtually no say in anything, right? And that's not good. Um, and the move of rep going to representative democracy from a dictatorship is a good move, right? Because at least there's some element of representative uh, representation, right? You're moving in a good direction, right? Who gets to decide that that is a better system than, than, dictators, than a dictatorship? Well, we do, right? Us as, 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 as participants in that society can say, well, in a dictatorship, I got no say. In this society, I get at least a little bit of say, but I want a society where I have more say in the decisions that affect my life. Okay. So uh, but there are, there are limits. There are that. limits to those things too. That's why direct democracies don't work. That's a representative democracy tends to be much better in the long run. So mm -hmm. the, 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 the limits of those ideas too. I just don't. I just, I, I want to. I will kill your idealism and make you a radical pragmatist. <laughs> it seems that democracy in general has taken a lot of L's, though. I would say. I mean, I think to interject. I think a, a good question. By the way. Uh, thank you guys for coming. It's always a pleasure to yes. have both of you. And everybody well, subscribe right now. All the people who are watching this, we have 94 people. I think we had 100 at a certain point, and we were probably mm. going to get 100 people, 100 more people. I want to get this to 200 people. So anyway, <laughs> guys, subscribe right now. Anyway, Gio, go for it. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you three on here on the show. Um, but no, I and think... Super Chat. And Super Chat. Yeah, and Super Chat. And Patreon. <laughs> so no, but I think that a good question would be, what 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 Bard you were getting at um, about the the question of freedom in general, but also uh, the the assumption or rather the images of thought that people have in terms of democracy itself equates freedom equates goodness. I think that we should problematize that to the extent of what is freedom for, and what is the limits of not just the limits of freedom that seems kind of basic, but at the root it's also what. Um, because having read your your uh, prolific tweet threads, Arash, I, I I agree with you in that the way that the system is structured in such a way that people really don't have a fundamental say in things that do affect their lives. Like you were talking about in your thread, how um, capitalism does not reward, or rather late capitalism does not reward innovation, and but rather it's the externalization of costs. So for example, 
and and by the way there actually was a 14 year old kid that had a nuclear a miniature nuclear uh, thing in his backyard that he disassembled um but legalized recreational nukes yeah look up nuclear boy i think that's what his name was there's a documentary on him but uh like for example the externalization of cost uh, is, to me, one of the most readily apparent things in the food industry. Mm-hmm. So, for example, why is it cheaper to add atrazine to, like, crops than growing them organically? Right. That creates superbugs, that create uh, untold horrific health hazards to people. Uh, those kind of things, they get lost in the discourse because it's very easy to look at the the rate of consumption that is present and to ask the serious questions about why is it that we need a McDonald's on every corner? Why is it that we need um, mass distribution that is in fact actuality, the food distribution networks aren't serving the people properly. So you point to this and I agree with you. And I think that there is a lot of evidence to say that the sort of, um, what would you say? Basic, basic Milton Friedman, like creative destruction, Friedrich Hayek stuff is becoming increasingly, uh, not that it doesn't exist, but creative destruction in the free market, it's kind of like an oversold entity and that in actuality, if there is stagnation that breeds better profitability, then mm-hmm. that's always going to be the path of least resistance. So I agree with you, but the question is whether we could do this in a way um, that isn't going to rely on uh, on greater centralization of authority. I think that that's almost an impossibility in my opinion. Societies get more complex. Oh man, that's like the heart of like everything that I I feel like I try to do. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, there you go. That like is, is I think it is, right? I think, I think the centralization of, of authority and the centralization of decisions is always to the detriment, right? I mean, it's, what is the most like, common saying of like human nature right power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely i mean is there one person that would disagree with that i I think that if power i would say that it depends on the centralization because it depends on guys this is this is why i wanted to bring in the united States States as an empire into the picture Mm because you are in Mm -hmm. north america at the moment well gee you're in canada right Oh, we're pretty much America, but it's, okay. yeah. Well, <laughs> Canada. No, you are Canada. You are actually independent from the United States. So you have a say. Canada's legal everywhere to begin. Anyway, anyway, this is why another way of looking at this, another approach, and again, we're going to arrive at class analysis to look at how human beings actually operate, what we call anthropology. So we know that human beings have a strong loyalty towards family. They have a strong loyalty towards clan size, and they have a strong loyalty towards tribe. That's how they lived for hundreds of thousands of years. And over the last 4,000 years, starting with the Persians, we invented larger entities. We call these larger entities nations and empires. Okay, the problem is that nations and empires, the bigger they are, arrive at scale. And with scale, we've been taught that there are certain advantages. Well, there are, right? But they have to operate in certain manners to make any sense. The problem though is that in an increasingly complex world, we feel increasingly alienated and now going digital, and digital is going global, human beings tend to go more local the more global the technology goes. So whereas we have these global technological empires today, I've written a lot about them, we have the alternative to that, which is that human beings respond by going more local. That is why we have a general trend towards decentralization. I don't think you can take the debate 
on decentralization in America seriously, unless you make smaller, stronger spheres with stronger membranes that cannot be controlled by Washington DC and Silicon Valley. That's precisely what I'm saying that what Arash is proposing is impossible in the United States. It's also impossible in China, Russia, Brazil, and India, because these entities are too big. And that's why we're now in Europe struggling with the European Union because it's becoming too bureaucratic. It has no advantage for European citizens. We can communicate with each other across the borders anyway these days through digital. And we're trying to figure out maybe Europe should go the other way and actually reinvent the model where countries like Switzerland and Sweden and Belgium are actually better than these huge imperial models. Because that's what we arrive with Arash is asking for. You, you should be able to go into the street and the elected politician you know should be somebody you should know. And the, the further that, the less power your elected politician that you know has, the further away that power goes to a bigger system. And suddenly you live in a country or a culture where Jeff Bezos and silly Donald Trump are the most two powerful people, none of whom you have any idea who they are and you have no access to them. That's when you start feeling really powerless. Right. And that's why we have to rethink the spheres that we have invented over the last 4,000 years. When is empire really appropriate? When does it actually make sense for empire to operate? When can markets operate at their best when they're empires? Uh, and when does empire not work? And that's why I think, you know, trashing big tech right now, repeating what America did in the 1890s with big oil, you know, things like that are really the way forward because you need to discuss these things in America, but I also think people in America need to ask themselves the serious question, why doesn't one of the states leave? Mm. What would that mean? It would create, if Vermont or Hawaii or somebody it would leave, what mm. kind of model would that be? By the way, well, speaking of writing and your work, shameless plug, I know, but please go and buy the Futurica Trilogy, please go and buy it. You'll never regret it. And in fact, I've just flipped to a random page 109. And I think it's very relevant on a purely material level. Everything suggests that the underclass can continue to expect a certain improvements. The social elevation of the underclass, which begins with capitalism will continue and assume new forms, but because the new underclass is characterized by its powers of consumption and not by its relatively high living standards, it is not possible to speak of any genuine reduction in the distance between the classes. A member of the consumeritarian will not be consumeritarian will not become a netocrat simply because he gets a larger apartment or a bigger car. So I think that's great because it highlights how people confuse what is the actual metric of higher living standards and greater say in what they mean in terms of their society because because people think that you know the poorest person in america can buy an iphone is that really a metric of social health and i think that is a good what both you and arash are talking about uh, because right now we're seeing the dawn of the consumer society where the decisions being made, but also the products that are being made. And again, oh, this is like Marxist orthodoxy about being alienated from one's consumption and labor. Now mm -hmm. consumption itself is a form of alienation, not just labor, because people mm -hmm. are alienated from that very active consumption as well. Uh, so it's, and it's just, it just got even more complicated because even if right. capital is more important, capitalism is over being replaced by intentionalism. And because attentionism has taken over the world over the last 10 years, uh, that get, makes it even more complicated. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The class issue is now like two axes. There's one which is wealth and income, and the other one is the attentional one, which is credibility, the credibility and awareness of our eyeballs and our ears and everything. And that mm -hmm. makes it fiendishly difficult for the capitalists themselves to begin with, but also for everybody else to orientate ourselves. Well, and look what they're doing also. Last point, and then I want to get to, to hopefully Athena and then, and then Arash. Um, because Athena, you come from a country that was directly affected by the American empire. And, uh, very you, much so, yeah. The British so. and the American. Yeah, and 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 from and it's, uh, I, Kuwait. Yeah, yeah, and I and I would say that Kuwait. Um, we were talking about this last stream yesterday about how Kuwait was like directly in the center of like the post-war, uh, sorry, the post-Cold War American order in the 1990s. Uh, but I would say the last point would be, um, when it comes to these patterns of attention in the attention economy. Look what just happened recently with Mark Zuckerberg banning Trump till the end of his presidency. I think that is indicative of where things are heading and in, in the, whether you agree with Trump or not, the nation, the nightmarish scenario of social media corporations, not just controlling patterns of production and consumption, but controlling the attention economy itself. You can name people, uh, Alex Jones, Stefan Molyneux, whether they deserved it or not, being banned off of social media um, all in the same day. And that is akin in a way to the uh, dramatic cutting off and severing of the attention economy itself that you talk about, uh, Alexander, when the, 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 the netocrat will be someone who sells the, the eyes and the ears and uh, who knows, maybe selling well, your soul well, I, I, I would, the internet. <laughs> I would disagree. They don't sell your eyes and ears because you can't sell them. That's why capitalists hate eternalism. Uh, mm. Advertising is dying. Marketing is dying. They're getting more and more desperate. That's why they go for woke next. It's just, it's just, it's just a sign that it's all dying. The current fundamentalism is not is Muslim and it's not Christian. The current fundamentalism is capitalist. And this is the end of capitalism because you cannot buy people's eyeballs and you cannot buy people's ears. We hate advertising more than anything else in the world. But I'd, I'd love to Rafina's take. You're the Sumerian here, like you're like you're like ten thousand years of culture, Rafina. That's, <laughs> that's me. And you're a, yeah, I'd love to hear your take on this. Where you think America's at? I think America is in the process of becoming a country just like China. And then eventually, just like North Korea, it's like, this might not be a very popular opinion, but I think that the way China is, and then North Korea is a more extreme version of China. I think that those two countries are blueprints to how every other country is going to be. Um, because I believe that there is only one government that rules the entire planet rather than separate governments and separate ideologies and separate like capitalism, communism, whatever, then the entire country is, the entire planet is a communist authoritarian as well. I'm working on that at the moment with a new book. Uh, I agree with you in the sense that uh, there is a censocracy about to happen, meaning there are gonna be censors everywhere around the planet and this kind of centralized mm -hmm. power enormously. Uh, Without moralizing, though, I have as a philosopher to come up with some alternatives to the Chinese Communist Party, and, and I owe it to people in Hong Kong and Taiwan right now. But uh, the, the only if you don't moralize about it, though, there is a problem with centralization. It's not very creative. So it creates enormous. The, Jack Ma has been gone for two months in communist mm -hmm. China. That, that, is, that is even more embarrassing than the storming of the Bastille last night. So it, it's just that there is a major problem with decentralization efforts. And, and that is why at the end of the day, 
power structures tend to be triads rather than just monithic. So power structures tend to be both symbolic, who owns the narrative, imaginary, who looks like power when you look around the king or the politician, and then real, meaning who owns the assets and, and, the, and can process those assets. And they tend to be different talents. So over time, at least, we've been saved by the fact that we had an aristocracy that fought the monarchy and that fought the priests of the churches. And we repeated that where the bourgeoisie, which Karl Marx points out, the bourgeoisie replacing the aristocracy. We had uh, the academ academics replacing the priests and the churches. And we then had politicians replacing the monarchs. So we'll see if that can happen again. The, the, at least the goal in my work with an autocracy is to see that at least this power would have to be split in the long term, because otherwise you get North Korea, but North Korea is poor. That that is actually a good case North against Korea is not poor. The, the, yeah. the government of North Korea is not poor. They get uh, billions and trillions from China. It's the people who are poor, but the the Kim family are extremely wealthy. They have resorts all over the country. Like they're very very rich. It's only the North Koreans themselves themselves who are poor and that's what usually happens in a, a communist system mm. same thing where... uh, happened in the ussr definitely yeah for sure oh, so if i'm hearing kind of the trend of uh what I, I believe just my interpretation of what everybody's kind of saying is that you know societies in general um today are moving towards con uh, consolidation of power uh, consolidation of uh, economic and political power uh, as evidenced here in the U U.S. Uh, and across the world. And ultimately, that is not a good direction to go. Uh, why? Because it's alienating, as we talked about. It's, uh, it's people will feel more and more alienated, more and more disconnected from, from the decisions that affect them. Um, and so the better direction to go is obviously the opposite direction, right? I think the, the, the question, if that's, if that's something we kind of all agree with, um, which is more or less, you know, what I think kind of anarchism speaks to, uh, is the decentralization of power, the decentralization and bringing what Alexander was talking about, bringing things much more locally uh, to the much more tangible, to the much more uh, where you can feel and participate and actually engage in the decisions that are affecting you in your community, we got to bring things back on that level. Yeah, but Ash, this is not a moral question. This is a question of technology. So I work in China, for example. To, to me, I'm it, is a, to me I, it is also yeah, a moral question, though. It cannot be. You, you can't, you can't reason, afford, <laughs> you can't to make it, afford to make reason, it more before you address saying, reality. You got to address the reality I would first. Say, the reason I would say it's moral, I, I'm not, not going to let you finish, but I just wanted to just make that one point, is that the reason I would say it is a moral question is because if our understanding of human nature is that, like I said at the beginning, if exercising our consciousness to have a say in the decisions that affects our lives is a source of fulfillment, which I believe from evolutionary biology, from uh, I know, but you can't those are things afford. that bring fulfillment, right? No, those are things that make point, us listen better. to my point why I said you cannot afford to have a moral opinion here because you got to address reality first before you have a moral opinion. Okay, I work in communist China, believe it or not, although I'm totally with Taiwan, but in communist China today, you can go into any communist party central computer. They have access to all the data in the entire country. You press the button within a second, you know, every fucking out of 1.4 billion Chinese citizens where they're located right away. That means you, can't, you cannot afford to sit with that kind of structure 
to talk about we should all live in little communes and be centralized and anarchic and all that, because that become, that's already becoming a possibility within our culture. You can then also say that doesn't mean the Chinese Communist Party is one as the only model in the world, because I, I think it's gonna be very hard for Xi Jinping to run India the way he's run China, for example. So this is for me, is more interesting to do cultural studies, to study technology, then take your call marks and your desires with you. But that's why I try to avoid moralism at this stage because we cannot even afford to have moral discussions at this moment because we're gonna sit a little Platonist boys and talk about our ideals when mm. reality is totally different today. The technological environment we live in today is not the 1850s any longer. It's very, very different. So you, yeah, you can throw well, certain things into the system before those technologies are developed. But at the end of the day, it's gonna be very, very hard to avoid America becoming communist China. And I think that's exactly why Fina has a point here. I understand, I understand. I and I think, so there's two, at least the way I see it, there's really two questions here, right? One is what direction do we wanna go? And I think we all agree, right? Uh, at least from what I'm hearing. The second question, so that, that's, the, that's, that's the question of direction that we should take society. The second question is, well, how do we get there, right? And that's a totally different question because like you said, that that could just be, you know, just a thought dream. That could just be us, you know, talking about like something that's absolutely not possible. Or is it possible? I don't know. Okay. I, I, I propose to be more I propose to be more Hegelian. I propose number one to have a reality check. Then number two, set out where we're gonna go. And then three, how do we get there? I think if you avoid the number one thing, you're just being too naive to actually understand what's going on at the moment. I, I mean, I would agree, um, but I, I also think there are ways of, of moving society in that direction. I think like in, in any sort of power structure, right? Power is never uh, just freely given back, right? Uh, no, but that's in, why I work with any, encryption. In any... that, the, the, best, the best movement in the world, again, looking at the world, how it actually operates today, kids are using encrypted services enormously. They love Signal, they love Telegram, right? Mm -hmm. That is human. And that's where you and I probably agree when you look at the technology. Why do you think I work with hackers? I work with hackers because the only people who can cause trouble right now for communist China are, only, are going to be for centralized government and centralized technology in North America as well. Hackers, hackers, hackers. As far as I know right now, the hackers, you know, they have Edward Snowden and Julian Assange as their messianic figures, and that's good because the only thing we have right now that can throw things into the system and avoid the system becoming too centralized, it can go in our direction, which is toward decentralization instead, is to use technologies to decentralize society. I yeah, think but that's there's what always, we should put down. But, but there's always a re-territorialization after initial deterritorialization. I mean, again, I know I'm a theory cell, so I have to quote Deleuze, but mm -hmm. it's true with hackers in particular. I mean, the federal government, I mean, how many hackers did they uh, subsume under their sort of, you know, you either go to jail or you hack for us. It's sort of that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't. And, and, uh, and during the raid, by the way. We we yeah, didn't the romantic even see anybody the with a USB is, uh... with a USB stick. Like, why? Uh, okay, I'm not. Oh, I said I'm this not... on Twitter. When you, you instead, <laughs> instead of taking fucking selfies, why don't you? You had Nancy Pelosi's computer right there. Not to not in Minecraft. In Minecraft. Yes. But you had nobody had a USB stick. Nobody. Nobody yeah, had an external hard drive. The only answer. This all doesn't make sense because the only answer is that it's fake and they're all actors. Most of well, those people were on Backstage.com. And then the, one, the Viking guy was on Backstage.com. Many, yeah. multiple of them were on there. And as soon as that came out, all the profiles were taken down, which is usually what happens with every single catastrophe in America. 
because look how it happened when this when all of this went down all of the social justice warriors were like fuck white people they should all die and <laughs> it causes division and that's the point they want to start uh civil well, well war. tomorrow tomorrow uh, is the is the what we're going to talk about what happened yeah free for all friday i'm <laughs> actually okay. going to call it so uh, but if, if it, you have a sort of if you have a sort yes. of pro decentralization argument here there are 3 million people working as hackers for the Chinese government. There are 40,000 hackers in Taiwan. And every week, the Taiwanese hackers beat the shit out of the communist Chinese ones. <laughs> once you're employed by central government or a big tech company by Facebook, you get corrupted very easily and get lazy and you don't work very hard. Idealists thankfully work harder. People are motivated by a grander goal and have some kind of religious or spiritual commitment in their lives. Work way harder than people just paid by a corrupt dictator. That's why I, North Korea I does personally play. think... But, but the other one is that, please remember, before you have your discussion tomorrow, that Proud Boys recruited more members than ever today. Mm-hmm. So this I, was good advertising for them. I, I feel, is, uh, and this, by the way, is going to be called. Uh, it's it's not. Uh, is it ogre edition? That's what I decided to call ogre? it. Oh my is God. it ogre? Yes. We'll <laughs> I see feel that you can't really understand contemporary politics unless you were watching um, the Attitude Era Monday Night Raw back in the nineties. You can't really understand uh, politics unless you were watching Raw uh, from 1999 to 2002, in my opinion. So, <laughs> well, that's so. what Trump was in a way. But I wanted to also focus on another thing, which I don't want to leave behind uh, for later, which is. Let's say we all agree that this decentralization is a good thing on a local level. Sure, I'm 100% with you. There is one other problem, though, which is the military problem. If we're talking about having gaps of power that other countries like China or like Russia could take advantage of in order to take more territory and incorporate other people, unwilling people, into their grasp, then sure, like America could say, you know what, we're just going to get rid of like all these structures and we're just going to, everybody's just going to do their own thing in their decentralized community uh but then what is going to happen to this kind of like backbone of and sure you could say military industrial complex all this horrible stuff whatever but still like would that be a problem as far as other countries coming into that gap of power should everything become decentralized well empires don't win wars all the time you guys just lost in vietnam and you lost in afghanistan again like Marx say, the first time was uh, the tragedy, the second time was the farce. I mean, you're leaving Afghanistan, you're leaving it to the Taliban. That's, to that's though, the damage of American military power. So to be I, fair, though, did we leave it because we were totally outnumbered, or did we decide, uh, by we, I mean the U.S., did the U.S. decide, okay, we've had enough of this, and let's no, go home? No, you left because you cannot afford to have a single dead American in the American media because you don't want to die any longer. You don't have any ideals in America. You don't want to die. And because you don't want to die, you can't win wars. You, you, that's exactly why you should watch the Pacific today as a nostalgic idea of what America used to be in 1944 and it no longer is. Because the Pacific today would be impossible for Americans. You're just so, too decadent now. So if a country, for example, was to take over some other country, would you think America would sit there and not really do anything and not bother with it? I mean, maybe, I don't know. Like, well, Trump certainly didn't get involved with anybody. Obama hardly did. You're basically picking presidents these days that will not get involved in foreign wars. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, well, yeah, we're, we're, we're now looking at the nightmare that China might take Taiwan over the next four years and hmm. Biden might not do anything about it. But what about all the bases that we have everywhere? Don't those count for anything at all? You, you close them down all the time and you go home. Oh, we still have that one in Germany. We have uh, well, I think I mean, Kuwait are very active. I think we have the most uh, American military bases out of any country. 
Yeah, there we yes, go. Yes, you do. Yeah, but you can invade Iraq because it's flat, right? But you cannot invade a mountainous country and win a war because it takes yeah. a lot of work for it. Even with the drones, you can't win that war. You would have won Afghanistan if you could, but you got to be out. And you're out of Iraq. America is just leaving Iraq completely to the Iranians. You lost that war utterly at enormous costs. It was just a Halliburton war, but it wasn't a war that America was set to win. And that was even the war you should have won because it's just flat desert to conquer. So would winning the war then be, this is actually something I brought up uh, yesterday, uh, Afina, you remember you were there, I brought this up about what if America were to, instead of the blunders that we had, where we uh, gave money to you know certain fighters versus other ones, certain tribes versus the others, instead of that, what if we would have continued the tradition of t- you know 2,000 years and just gone full Imperium mode, when in there, like the uh, Alexander the Greats, like the Ptolemies, and just conquered it and put our own people in there and just made it like another American empire. You can't, and you, you can't any longer because most of your soldiers today are black and Hispanics. And if you invade a country, black and Hispanic guys will die and the Black Lives Matter will demonstrate in Washington DC and they will storm the Capitol and you'll be over. You, you, America is completely decadent today. Nobody's willing to die for any ideas any longer in America, except some exceptional Christian Republican women that are going after Google right now, which I love. But it's except for that nobody really is interested in freedom America because you're not willing to die. And it's very niche in here, but if you're not willing to die for your causes or for your family even, you cannot fight for freedom anywhere and you cannot even fight for your own imperial power. I think it is a deeply dysfunctional empire. Gladly, I think China is the same because I think China is way weaker than people think. So is this like the Nietzschean master-slave morality? If we're talking about America going to the slave morality where we're not willing to die, rather we would succumb to whatever is happening to us. And uh, yeah, no, I I think that that may be the case as well. But Arash, uh, what do you make of this? Uh, Definitely don't agree with the Black Lives Matter part. But um, I would say that historically, the U.S. fights wars that are in its own best interest. Um, it's not about, uh, you know, the fighting for the freedom of others. It's rarely been about that. It's been about geopolitical. It's about, uh, uh, consolidation of geopolitical power and, and those types of things, controlling resources, controlling oil and such. Um, what is, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. And, um, you know, like, like any empire, um, it, it's flawed, right? I mean, most people don't want to be uh, bombed by a foreign power. Most people want to lead their own uh, uh, revolutions and don't want, you know, puppet regimes, which uh, the U.S. has a whole long history of, of instilling uh, throughout the world. Um, and that builds resentment and that builds, uh, you know, long-term uh, problems for any empire, really. Uh, I mean, you look at the history of any empire and I think it's, it, 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 it repeats itself. Were the the Mughals resented in India, though? Like, if we're talking about empires who had occupants that were not of, let's say, the same color of skin or whatever uh, faculty there, like, if we look through history, there's all kinds of examples of empires. No, but wait wait, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah, Yeah. wait a second. Okay, let me correct you here. The Mughals did not run India. They were just formally running it, like uh, the Swedish monarch Mm. who doesn't even vote, right? They have very little influence. Look at the Mongol Empire, for example. They were bloody like hell and murdered and burned libraries and destroyed most of history, especially Iran. But at the end of the day, when the Mughals, once they run their empires, 
they had a 5% tax rate for everything and they left everybody to run their own business in their own communities. They were actually popular. And if it hadn't been for the plague, we could have had the Mongol empire for hundreds of years. So it's all about whether an empire invades and constructs an empire with power sharing installed from the very beginning. The Persian empires, four of them, lasted for over 2,200 years. The empire lasted for six years and then imploded because the Egyptian one was very much Xi Jinping, it was a dictatorship, it was not in worshiping the sun. Whereas the Persians installed their first empire by power sharing structures. And by the power sharing structures, especially separating priest and chief, or priest and king, if you like, you get a much more sustainable system over time because it actually includes decentralization. This is the great thing with the United States. The reason it was kept together for as long as it has was because of the constitution. But the problem with the United States today is because you don't trust each other in America and you take each other to court all the time and you don't even know what trust is. You work your asses off to be on a level with the Europeans where people trust their neighbors much more than you do. And the Japanese trust their neighbors much more than you do in America. You cannot have a country any longer that goes out there in the world and offers its own sons in a war. It, 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 it is, you got to study the previous empires if you're going to run one. Mm. My suggestion, though, is that I prefer the Middle Ages. I prefer renaissances. I prefer smaller units. This is where I'm with Arash. I think anarchism is the way to go today. And I think we should split up these empires without them causing too much havoc mm. on the world. Russia will certainly fall apart in the next 10 years. As soon as Putin dies, it's over. And hopefully not too violently, but going to the mode of being, being smaller units. And smaller units can cause less destruction. I completely agree if Russia and China are not going to be powerful enough at that point to start picking up the scraps, so to speak. I, for one, think if the Mongol Empire survived, that would be pretty based in red pill, in my opinion. Ah. So. <laughs> well, what about you, Arash? Like, as far as these empires go, the example that Alexander was bringing up, could this be a way that it could work, where you would have an empire, sort of, but it would be like this kind of... How did you term it, uh, Alexander? Create decentralized uh, regions. I mean, I think that's better uh, than uh, what we're seeing in, in much of what the U.S. has done and, and other... Uh, contemporary empires. Uh, I think the tendency, though, is that uh, power wants to always beget more power. I mean, I think that's just the natural tendency of it. So it, can there be a be benevolent emperor uh, who is going to go and liberate uh, countries and bring about this like decentralized anarchist uh, sort of society? I mean, I guess it's feasible, uh, but is it likely? I think very unlikely because it goes against the natural tendency of power, right? The natural tendency of power is to always want more power, always ask for more. And, and it's not until uh, uh, people, you know, resist and fight and, um, and, and raise the cost of that power that it, to, you know, to the point where it's no longer worth it to ask for more and that's usually where we find that boundary. So is it feasible? I think it's feasible. Is it, is it likely? I think it's, I think it's unlikely. I think it's, um, uh, I, I think the much, a much sort of better approach would be to support liberation movements around the world uh, and let people bring their own uh, liberation, let people bring their own uh, democracy and decentralization. I think that's a much better approach than, than the idea that there could ever be a benevolent dictator. I think the elites today speak volumes because they move to places like Singapore and Dubai. I mean, they want to live in the city states. Mm. They want to live in places like Switzerland. 
So if the elites want to move there, why don't the rest of us get some similar models as well? But, but we have to remember, though, that empire is here for another reason, though, and that is the internet itself is an empire already. Because of the internet protocol, it operates the same way across the planet. Because the internet itself has access to satellites everywhere, it will be. This is where Athena's uh, ideas are, are very important here. The censocracy itself, the censocracy, the way we're being controlled by censors. And, and what the censocracy essentially is telling us is that why do you vote every four years? We actually vote every second. Because with AI, we will measure everything you do all the time. We can measure it against billions of other people, and therefore we can know what you want anyway before you know it yourself. That's what Sensocracy will tell us, right? That will be imperial, though, in the sense it will be global imperial. But I don't think human beings can handle that. So where I'm with Arash is that if you're going to create a humane society, we should go for smaller and smaller units. Now, where the smaller units can operate within an empire that is technological is hard to tell. That means standards, for example, saving the planet has to be on a global level, otherwise it will not happen. Mm -hmm. So let's go, let's go in a little bit more depth into, into technology, right? Because the way I look at technology is that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it, every second is like a vote, right? We're constantly interacting with technology, but who controls most of the technology today, right? Is it, is it decentralized or is it also part of the problem, right? That they're mostly controlled by, you know, mega corporations, right? International corporations like the Facebooks and the, uh, whatever, Instagram, uh, Twitter. I mean, these are large corporations that are run also like we talked about in, in any capitalist workplace. I mean, they're run top down, right? They have certain agendas, they have certain uh, motives, right? And, 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 the, and then uh, it comes down to, right? To me, the question of technology also comes down to the question of the megaphone, right? So who gets the biggest megaphone and who gets to decide? Right. So how do we have a free and liberated and, and truly, I guess, if we call it a democratic society, when information, right, you go to the newsstand and there's like hundreds of magazines, but literally in the U.S., it's like three different companies own all those. So you think there's this diversity, but there's really not. Mm -hmm. Right. Same thing. Same thing uh, with the liberal media. Right. You look at the difference between the liberal media and, and what we call here in the U.S., like the conservative media and the Fox News and so on. Right. To me, I mean, first of all, they're both corporate, corporate owned, corporate run. OK, the, the, the diversity of viewpoints between these are very, very narrow, believe it or not, even though there's so much division and hostility between the two sides, it's really not that big of a of a gap of, of the of the variety of viewpoints that they 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 allow on their networks. Okay, so we cannot have a free, liberated, good society if we don't also uh, decentralize and democratize, so to speak, technology and the megaphone and access to megaphones. Well, you got to split them up because no matter how much you dream about bottom up entrepreneurship, it's not going to happen. That's not how entrepreneurship works. You split them up. You do again now what you did in the late 1800s, which saved America for another year, 100 years. And that was splitting up the big oil and railway companies. And you got to do the same thing all over again before they move somewhere else and control you from there. Because the problem in, in Europe is, of course, that the tech giants that control us here are American companies. So the... the these things go on an imperial level. You, you cannot control big tech. 
You cannot save the planet. Certainly, you cannot, you cannot be cosmopolitan for all I care, unless you go on an imperial level. And this is why I contradict myself. It's like, that's where you need empire. You need to figure out how you run empire on that level and only allow empire to have that power, whereas you keep everything as local as possible. It's got to be fiendishly difficult to get this sort of political philosophy right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I personally kind of feel like not only do we need to go politically, uh, decentralized, but I also feel we need to go technologically uh, decentralized. We need to go information, right? We cannot have one or two uh, international conglomerates basically owning the 80% of the information that people receive and expect to have any sort of democracy or any sort of like real freedom in the sense of people actually like having the information necessary to make decisions uh, for themselves and in their lives, right? You cannot have such centralization of information and have a decentralized society. I think they go hand in hand. Well, if I may interject with a controversial take, I think that the norm throughout human society were was um, small fiefdoms of absolute rule for a reason. And, but the problem, you know, again, this is a problem, I think, with... Uh, people on my side of things with reactionary politics would be you can't replicate um, centralized authority when the elites do not share a kinship, a noblesse oblige, or a spiritual connection to the people that they're ruling. Now it's an impossibility to have bug men like Mark Zuckerberg or um, Jeff Bezos ruling, like effectively having more power than presidents at this point. Uh, if we were to revert, and again, this is where I disagree with people like Moldbug, if we were to revert to a system of rule uh, of, you know, these different patchworks of decentralized uh, absolute rulerships, little fiefdoms, you would have people like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos ruling. And and uh, would you say that they are on the same level as absolute monarchs of old? I would say no. So... Uh, I think this is a problem. I, I I don't necessarily agree with the analysis that pure decentralization always leads to the maximization of human flourishing, because frankly, I think a lot of people, um, what's a way of putting it nicely, uh, don't know what to do with freedom, I guess you could say, but uh, that's a way of putting it nicely. But I do feel that in the absence of leaders who are actually worthy, who actually share cultural and uh, more intangible connections to the people that they're ruling over, I do feel that the, you know, the American sort of yeoman ideal of decentralized states, that's almost like the best that we're going to get in our current epoch, uh, unless, you know, I don't know, the solar flare happens and we'll, well go to well, a well, Tekizinski society. So how I don't do know. We st- how do we <laughs> stop people? How do we stop people who are living in technologically aided decentralized communities from just becoming a bunch of gooners and just gooning <laughs> all day in their goon cave? Wireheads. Yeah, wireheads, right. gooners, whatever you want to call it. Because, like, freedom, from what I understand, is also supposed to be freedom from uh, uh, desire. You know, freedom for desire overtaking you and just making that, you know, an endless part of your entire day unless you have to survive, in which case you're not going to think about gooning anymore. But uh, that's the other, like, uh, you know, descendants, uh, descent of mankind that could possibly happen if we have really cushy technology that basically means we don't have to do anything. 
I don't know. I, I believe that that humans have an innate desire to want to create and and uh, and want to, you know, live a life of fulfillment, live a life of. Uh, I mean, not to say people are the same. Of course, there's a huge diversity, which is why we should also want and and, and really celebrate um, different ways for people to find, you know, what's most fulfilling to them. Uh, but I think there is something to be said that uh, the drive for creativity um, and the disdain for mon monotony. I mean, why not have technology uh, that reduces the monotony of, of rote labor and, and we can spend more time focused on creating, uh, you know, more culture, more, you know, everything. Uh, but I think technology. we did that the last 20 years and it didn't work. I'm sorry to say this, but we created the internet where almost at zero cost, we mass produced user generated content and we're sick of it. Why? Because it's all mediocre. So, it, well, but, but why? The question no, is- No, wait, wait, a second, wait a second. I think you're naive. I think you're naive here, to be honest. Yes, oh. <laughs> I am a proponent of protopianism. I'm a proponent of creativity. I'm a proponent of a new symbolic class that can outshine boring, dead academia and do arts in fantastic ways. I'm a member of the intellectual deep web where Lev and G are involved as well. And, and, and we're all about- No, we're beyond those but, grifters. Don't okay. worry about <laughs> deep web, but, not dark web. Okay. Not, oh, deep web, not dark web. Good, good, good. No, yeah, the, the dark web died and the deep web survived because we killed the father. So the intellectual deep web is very much The dark <laughs> web is what happened, but it's a small elite that actually do that. I think, to be honest, Arash, to working class people, I think to have a contributive role in society, say go to work, even if it's monotonous, they don't care, but to have a contributive role is absolutely fundamental or else they kill themselves. That's why they have babies. That's why they have families. That's why they oh. go to work. And unless we figure that out for the masses, I think we're just sitting here being snobbish middle-class people saying that, oh, we should all be creative and make more culture. Well, we've overproduced culture and we're going to overproduce. That's true. We're suffocating with meaning. We have so much junk culture out there. We can't stand more culture. We're overfed with culture. That's not the response of where we're going next. But on the other hand, Marcus will keep us all busy because we will not be able to afford to live in cold shows or, or kibbutzes or whatever. It's not going to happen. Right. But this, see, like this, this sort of overwhelmingness of culture, right, is is drowning out uh, the real diversity, I think, of, of, of perspectives that people have. And and it's part of, like like you said, like the Facebook problem, right, where there's just so much information out there. But is it really like new? Is it really elegant? Is it really diverse? Are we getting really radically different perspectives? I don't think- Arash, Arash, 95% of people cannot produce what you're asking for. You're just being cruel here. No. Right, we gotta, oh. we gotta, we gotta so, be humane. I, so, don't believe, I don't believe in this sort of creative class fantasy. We're all gonna be creators in the future and things- I'm not saying everybody's gonna create. No, no, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that there is a, an aspect of human nature that drives us towards creativity. I'm not saying everybody is yeah. creative. Everybody's no, no. I think the, I think that. I think the community I think, I think, has I think certain drive, archetypes that driven towards art. I don't think people in general are artists at all. I think that's a that's, lie. Well, I think all I'm saying is that the drive for creativity comes from an innate human potential to create. I'm not saying everybody's creative. Yeah. Or everybody's but create, artist. create for whom? To what well, 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 maybe, maybe let Arash so, finish his book. <laughs> so that's that's the one part, right? The second part is that 
when you live in a society where only a tiny fraction of, of the population are even in a position to make decisions, are even in a position to think, create, uh, to think critically, to actually engage in those decisions, right? When you have such a top-down structure in society, the entirety of our educational system, the entirety of all aspects of our society gears most people, right, to fit a slot available for them in society. So I, I believe in a good society when everybody has a chance to actually engage and participate in the decisions that affect their lives, our educational system would be radically different because then we would have to have a society where everybody has to be taught how to think critically, where everybody has to be taught how to make these important decisions for themselves, right? It's a very different society, but you can't have one without the other. So, so that's to that, to that aspect. And then to the last point that you made about workplaces, studies have shown that most people hate their jobs. And when you look at why they hate their jobs, it's because it's so alienating, right? So I'm not saying that, that everybody's going to be an artist or, or, or everybody. Wait a second. Wait a second. Unemployed, unemployed people go and kill themselves. So you, you can't get, this is too naive. My argument is too naive. I think, I think if you want to really create a humane society, you better have to understand archetypology, deep psychology, how people actually operate. So instead of us sitting here like some kind of snobbish, academically educated, upper middle class people telling people they should all be created in the future. At the end of the day, we had that society. We had that society over the last 20 years. And finally, people got sick of it because even if they started creating this culture you're talking about, nobody was really interested because there was no audience for it. Because everybody was told to be on a stage and nobody was left in the audience. That is exactly why that society well, is important. But, that, but that's, that's, where, that's where like diversity comes in. I mean, not everybody wants to be an actor. Not everybody, well, wants, to be, uh, not everybody was, wants to be a singer. There's okay? this comedian, Tim Dillon. I think he made a very interesting point that today people get offended when they see somebody really talented on stage. Like when they see somebody like, you know, back in the day, they used to have like, uh, you know, who was that, uh, that guy who was, uh, you know, running up the wall. I'm thinking of Freddie, Freddie, Fred Astaire. So if they see Fred Astaire today, that's kind of offensive to him because I can't do that. So now they're used to seeing all these losers on stage that are slobs well, just like a lot of people are. And they're like, oh, they're just like me. I can relate <laughs> to them. And, you know, like, that's the kind of disappointing thing here. Like, there seems to be an overabundance. Yeah, but they, they, will go, they will go back to talent-generated content eventually. I wrote a paper in 2003 where I said that MySpace is never going to work. It was 400 million users at the time. And I said, because it's all junk. And I worked at the record company. I said, this is not going to work. So people started pretending that they liked each other. They started pretending by saying, thank you for the ad which is like telling a third person in the face that we don't know each other, we've got to pretend we know each other to fool you into believing we're talented. This sort of talent war with no talent is exactly what happened. This is the slay mentality trying to be a master when it can't. And what happened then was that Facebook tragically repeated the same mistake. That's what Facebook is dying at the moment. It just became another MySpace. They never learned the lesson. Wait. They, thought, they, they, they <laughs> sold it to the telecom companies of the world that we don't have to pay for talent. We don't have to pay for content. We're going to make everybody an artist and everybody has got to be user generated content in the future. And we were so sick of it when we arrived at 2018, 2019. So when the Corona year happened, we went to Netflix and preferred to be sedated to have real talent telling us a story that really moved us because we can't do that. 
Most people do not have artistic talent. And why do you tell them they're going to be diverse and creative when we're sick of that? We're sick of mediocrity. That's what our society is grounding. And I think, I think basic work in that sense is much better. <laughs> Go out in the woods and learn how to hunt and you know eat your own food or whatever. Well, I think it's that's better, it's Raj a better reaction saying. than be producing ever more content in the world that's just sick of content. But I that's think a that's kind of what Arash was too, kind right? of saying too. Like I, I think what Arash is saying is that it's he, from what I take it, you're not stating some kind of like. Uh, like, I don't know, fucking Chapo fantasy where everyone's going to be on UBI and they can be college pothead wastos, like the college dropout potheads like they are. But rather, if people were more connected to the, what they're doing, maybe not creative in terms of everyone is a creative person, everyone's an artist, but rather if people were more connected to their labor itself, that would be produce better outcomes because there is something about physical labor having, believe it or not, you know, done construction. There is something about working with your hands and seeing the product being finished and, and knowing that people are going to find value in what you're doing. And I agree with you, uh, Mr. Bart, I agree that, um, you know, the fact that everyone has access to technology that can make the production of art, whether it's music or, or visual art or whatnot, easier, it hasn't produced a sum total of better artists, but it's produced a vast sea of media mediocre people. But but I don't know. I'm offended because are you saying that all of those generic metalcore bands that came out of MySpace that they were bad? You mean to tell me Jobs for a Cowboy wasn't yeah, that great? A lot of the, most of them were bad, yeah, and I think that yeah, shit. yeah. And I think that <sighs> what you said with how the uh, how technology made the creating and creativity easier, I think it makes a lot of people lazy. Yeah, um, that's true. Creating things with your hands and putting so much heart and effort into it is something very sacred. And we don't really have that now. But the fact well, that, that, that brings, by the way, real quick, that yeah. brings up uh, some something that I think, Arash, uh, you could feel me on this, which is when you were talking about people being unhappy in their job, I completely agree. But what I would also add there, and maybe this is a naive take, but if a lot of people were going to be a lot more like around nature, you know, tending to a farm or something, breathing in the fresh air, then at least their body would feel physically better because they wouldn't be cooped up in a cubicle all day or whatever, or even in one of these, out, uh, you know, out offices, you know, the ones without the cubicle, but every, everybody's around you, all these people droning on about their, I mean, now with COVID, you don't have the that open office anymore. Like people are just indoors doing all this stuff, but that's pretty bad too. So it's like you're, your instincts are not being worked out by having to figure out when the crops have to be, you know, planted and all that stuff. So a lot of things go into that. So maybe people are missing a lot of that too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I definitely would agree with that, you know, and just kind of just engaging with your work and, and pride, you know, like the, the feeling of pride, uh, Joe mentioned, you know, the, the feeling of pride from like a job well done, like, you know, creating a bookshelf that you could actually like touch and feel and, 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 and put your hands on. I mean, that's, that's amazing, right? That's that's a good feeling, and I think that uh, you know I started by talking about um, human nature, and that's kind of where I derive uh, some of my ideas or a lot of my ideas. Well, another aspect of humanity uh, is that we're we're social species, right? So we we innately seek that sort of social esteem from from our peers, um, and of course, you know, as as Alexander mentioned, like you know the social medias and the Facebooks and all them exploit that, 
right? They exploit that to uh, uh, to maximize their profits, and they, they, you know they could care less about actually fulfilling our real human desires for uh, camaraderie or for social esteem or <laughs> for any of these things. They don't, you know, they don't care about any of that. Uh, what they want to do is they want to exploit that that need to reach out to connect and to feel connected to others right exploit that for profit and for profit maximization and that's exactly why we have you know the shit that we have on facebook and, and all these uh, other social media sites yeah but i think in all honesty i think it reflects humanity you can't blame all that on facebook uh, they have subcultures and they encourage you to find your own tribe if you like to uh this is also that it's driven on attention so facebook and social media are driven on sensations and it was a sensation last night when the capital was stormed and they have more traffic than ever. So, you know, the, 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 you gotta go to the more humane thing here and, and the existential question is this one. For example, I give an example here. We all know the Corona year will kill more academic careers than anything we could ever imagine. Why? Because every damn local professor will be out of work next year. Why? Because we all learned this year that we have the best lectures in the world on YouTube and we can find them. And even if you pay for their special lectures and the occasional meeting with them, or we just have for free the best lectures in the world ever, then we have them now on YouTube. We learned this. this Some year. of them have been every, on the show, damn, by the way. Every damn college student knows that a mediocre professor in the Midwest is out of work next year. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, no, no, no. But that means, that means millions of academic professors are out of work. That's because the empire here is technological. It goes towards fucking great talent, right? Really raw talent. And that talent has to be either global, meaning it's Disney or something, or local or subcultural, meaning it's specialized. So say, uh, for example, uh, I, I love Euphoria. I think it's a great script, but it's very specifically written for people who are deeply, deeply interested in the dramas of 19-year-old Instagram addicts, right? But I am, I love that. But that's a very clever way of doing it because it hits globally, subculturally, and it's fantastic, a great talent involved. Now, when I watch Euphoria, it's not that I'm gonna get involved, involved with another Facebook thread with people arguing with each other from very sort of basic positions that they're sort of affirmed all throughout the discussions. That's just useless. Facebook is dead in that sense. But I, I, think, I think we must not be naive about the fact that talent moves towards the imperial. It moves towards a few big, big winners. Uh, and very little left for people in a lower way. So when you say, for example, to create your own bookshelf is meaningful too. Yeah, but the vast majority of people are not going to pay for it. They're going to go to IKEA anyway. Sorry, but they will. Well, that's, the that's where the problems are at. The unfortunate thing to me is that we still have these things like the teachers unions and we still have pressure or at least built up traditions that a lot of parents assume that, of course, I have to bring my kids into this uh, public school. And even if we're under lockdown, you know, of course, they're going to go into these school zoo meetings with these, you know, mostly, you know, unqualified people to uh, teach them uh, about all this stuff. Oh, that's that's gonna be over 10 years from now completely. School's dead, academia's dead. Every damn household robot will teach you better than a school teacher ever could before you're five. And that's gonna be fantastic. But academia is also dead and over because not a single academic I know any longer wants to be involved with academics. You, you wanna have your own separate monastery or separate mm -hmm. independent institution where you can study your shit. I'm sure Arash is moving there, I'm moving there. I'm sure Gio and Athena agree with me too, that you wanna have these sort of monasteries you can deeply study something, be a specialist on it, and then you can have your market for that and you can have people you engage with with that topic. Like we what guys would be do enough here. to make money but, though? But, 
But, but outside of subcultures that are very specialized and the global imperial arena, I don't really see local market for generalists. I don't see that happening. I think that's exactly why a lot of white collar work will go in the next 10 years. Mm. So what do you predict would happen to a lot of the people that the journalists told them, uh, just learn the code, if we're talking about the miners and the truckers and uh, a lot of those people? Well, their jobs are more Lindy than uh, a lot of the journalist jobs. So that's one thing. True. but if And the coding start... mostly happens in Russia and India anyway to lower cost yeah. in yeah. America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if everything is going to start getting more automated, like if we are going to have these self-driving uh, trucks, that's a big concern about the no, truckers. But that, like, that is actually yeah. a fascinating question, though, because what, what happens when people within the tech sectors or people that are what would be traditionally considered white collar work, now they're getting by the uh, late capitalist overclass. Now their jobs are being exported to the third or, well, fifth world, whatever model you're using. What happens there where high-skilled workers are in, in India and Russia and Taiwan, now they're replacing the coders in Silicon Valley who are living in, apparently they have uh, these parking lot cities where they like have these tiny homes in these parking lots they're living in now. So uh, what, what happens when the Silicon Valley uh, dude bros get uh, offshored? You know, that's what will society look like when we're factoring that with automation, right? I mean, that's always going to be the perennial question, it seems, about automation and offshoring, right? So, Architects, they're a white collar, right? Yes, very much so. Yeah, I'm, I study architecture. I'm in my final year of my bachelor's and mm. I'm, I don't plan on working nine to five as an architect, but a lot of my colleagues are very concerned because we all know that architecture and uh, designing buildings and you know all of that is going to be replaced by AI and technology which is very concerning because what are those people like you have a bachelor's in architecture what are you going to do once you have AI running all of that running that you, you come and work with me Afin I will figure that out I work with <laughs> architecture you're the new Saha did for God's sake that's what oh you my god yeah. actually I'm not I would be Zaha Hadid but I would be like uh, i'm more into classical architecture than modern yeah okay but the thing though is this well i think you, you will be into so i did for anything did you know that she designed the tokyo olympic stadium but they didn't dare to build it in japan yeah oh, which really? is a good thing i think any country that has an, an olympic stadium gets destroyed but the olympic oh no the olympic stadium she designed was basically a vagina Oh, that's uh, seen from course. Course. <laughs> of course. It's not she she she's a fucking Arab lesbian. She's wonderful. Anyway, <laughs> the way you do it, though, I, I don't think her, you're. Yeah. I think I think architecture, though, is still around the because there is something machines cannot do and will not do, and it's called pathos. And the thing you do with architecture, you, know, you basically set a, you sort of skip the building that way, or skip the building that way. And you have to, and you get all the numbers and all the data, so you know how more much more expensive or cheaper or whatever it will get because if you build it, because that that's just when sensocracy really works in a creative way too. I think that final touch, the final artistic touch, or anything that's meaningful to us and has some kind of aesthetic beauty, will be human for hundreds of years to come. That is very true, which is why yeah. even now we love all the buildings that have been here for hundreds and hundreds of years compared to things that have been built a year ago. We appreciate them more and we see the beauty in them. And I have to leave because I have to go have dinner. But hmm. this has been a real pleasure because Alexander, when I lived in Sweden, I used to see you on the TV all the time. So it's like crazy <laughs> that I'm in a Zoom call with you. <laughs> <laughs> 
You should have applied to one of my shows and I could have discovered you. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll discover you as an architect instead. You're fantastic. You're fantastic. Thank you. Yoga's good day. And uh, Arash, you. Arash, you're a legend. Uh, very uh, big honor to meet you as well. I am also Persian, ethnically Persian, uh, which is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I have to go. Thank you guys and love Gio and Jules who's not here. You, you guys are a no, king he's here. as well. Good to see you again. Yeah, I just I just came in. Oh, hey, okay. Very nice. Oh, Fina, thank you so much for coming <laughs> see in. You I soon. really appreciate you as always. And Thank guys, you. I don't, appreciate you guys. Don't forget you, to subscribe Fina. right now. Everybody, listen up and listen good. We are taking super chats today. So if you have any pressing questions that you want to ask Arash and Alexander, now is the time. Send us your super chats right now and we will get that done. And also, don't forget to subscribe. I love you very much. You guys are the best. I love you. Okay, so one topic that I really wanted to get into here is we talked about you know all these uh, all these interesting ideas and why these ideas would work better than some other ones but as far as the actual practicality of how do we start doing this uh alexander you were mentioning some things like school that's automatically going to happen like within 10 years or so uh professors are starting to dropping like flies good but if we're talking about the practicality of let's say politics what i still don't know today is whether it's a closed system where if you want to do something to enact certain you know reforms in the positive direction, maybe, you know, loosen up certain regulations that hamper business or uh, something else, there's going to be kind of a, uh, you know, I, I don't want to use the word cartel, because I think that there are things that could be described even more so as cartels that function in this way. But still, I think that there may be a closed circuit that's difficult to get into if you even want to do anything in politics. And maybe politics I want to respond you don't have to, to do anything in that. Go for it, Jules. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and something I noticed there definitely is kind of a closed system or like a closed group element in politics. And so if you want to affect change, if you want to be persuasive, if you want to have political influence, you have to play ball. Now there is kind of a rebel impulse to kind of create your own in-group. And while making your own in-group, you might design it so that you're inscrutable to outsiders, where you're inventing your own language and you're, you have your own slang. And the problem with that is it makes it even harder for you to be influential, right? And, and so maybe that'll be good for your door fortress, but as far as then going outside and saying, hey, you know what I think we should be concerned about? X, Y, Z people will not listen to you. And if you've spent so much time focusing on your in-group because you have a rivalry impulse or a competition impulse that is like, if, if, you're, if your impulse is, I wanna knock people off their high horse instead of, okay, I disagree with you people and I don't wanna feel like I'm prostrating myself or I'm being subservient. I don't wanna be a bitch. So I'm not going to play ball. At a certain point, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis and think about what you want and what you want the effects of your actions to be. Uh, yeah, correct. Yeah. So your generation are finally discovering that Occupy Wall Street would never have worked? 
I laughed at it when it happened. It's just like, you know, the capitalists in Wall Street sold the T-shirts to the kids within three days. <laughs> That's how superficial it was. I mean, finally, a certain young generation are discovering that this takes hard work and compromise and ages if you're going to be involved. Although I would say that we seem to assume that politics is a constant size, a constant zone. It isn't. It's getting more smaller and smaller, shrinking all the time. It's just getting more, politics is getting better at being in the media, at least during Trump it was. But maybe with Biden, we'll have less politics in media. But politics was all over the place in media, people assuming that it was more important than ever, when in reality, politics has less and less and less influence because power is moving to technology. And this oh, we talk I, I about disagree in the somewhat. I think that politics in some ways has been installed, instilled and ingratiated itself within ordinary life and culture and not just not just media, because media is the biggest simulator of culture that politics has become imperceptible in the way, because now uh, we're even seeing a, a, a mass religion being uh arisen out of the present conditions where politics becomes religion for most people in a lot of ways. So therefore politics has become imperceptible in that it has such a wide reach that what we consider politics is so vast and so large and so um, away out of the hands of most people that we think that it's been sidelined. But, but then it's our politics. That's my point. If well, politics becomes spirituality, that is spirituality and should be described as spirituality. Because people well, yeah, like talk about it and have opinions and start in groups, like Jules said, but since very few of them are actually willing to go through the entire hassle of becoming political candidates and actually but it run seems for that politics And it's become... not really politics they're interested in. Because if you're interested in politics, you're interested in power and changing hmm. society. But if you're interested in having an opinion and talk a lot about it, that's spirituality. That's not politics. But that's the thing about biopower as well, is that now that you know, power is life itself. Power is the spectacle and the spectacle is politics nowadays. Yeah. So, yeah. I have, I have a question, by the way, related to this to uh, Arash and to Alexander. This is something I've brought on in uh, different shows, but uh, my consensus when it comes to the quote unquote establishment, the uh, liberal establishment, the cathedral, whatever you want to call it, is maybe what they are doing is they have subsumed, and sure, you could say the leftists are out of control and all that, but maybe in a way they have subsumed elements of the extreme left and pandered to the extreme left, I mean, obviously, in order to get elected, but maybe that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, because maybe by doing that, they're preventing something out of control from taking over. So it's like, it's not the best scenario that we've got right now, but maybe it's not as bad as people make it out to be to have somebody who's going to be like the uh, controlled opposition or who's going to subsume this uh, more, let's say, communist opposition, pretend to be on their side, give them all kinds of goodies, you know, psychological goodies, but at the end of the day, not really give them anything more than that and just keep the status quo as bad as it is, just because maybe something, uh, there could be something worse than that that would come along if they weren't there. Well, America will never be run by any of the extremes. The far right and the far left could take America to civil war, but they will never be able to run it because you either have to go for Stalin or Mussolini in that case, and then you have to run it as a dictatorship, and that's not going to happen. Ameri never American, get a the American empire is way beyond the point where that could even happen. But it can be very violent in these groups because they get the attention they get from being violent. The Proud Boys discovered yesterday, this is how they get even more members. The Proud Boys discovered yesterday by picking up a gun gets more attention than not wearing a gun. So they have all the incitements now to go, go in that direction. This is not over by far. I mean, 
both the far left and the far right, as soon as they discover, they never get close to power. They only get close to symbolic theater. They're gonna go for the theatrical in a big way and not care about power because they probably never did in the first place. So I would, have to, um, I would have to take a point of disagreement on how change comes about. Um, so my understanding of history and how movements or how you know dictators have been toppled uh, is that I think we have to start with the assumption that power doesn't give up power unless it's forced, right? A dictator is not going to give up their power and their position as a dictator unless society gets to the point where it's really between, you know, uh, can I continue to being a dictator or will everything be overthrown? Will there be a revolution, right? And it's not until you bring it to a point where, uh, you know, you raise, for example, the social costs of whatever that person is doing or that oppression or that power is doing, you raise the costs of them doing that to the point where it's no longer worth it for them to do it. And that's the only way things have changed in history, right? That's how you could say, you know, slavery was overthrown or how dictators are overthrown. So building a movement to overthrow powerful uh, entities like a dictator um, or what have you, right, requires massive mobilization, requires uh, raising of the social cost of whatever it is that they're doing, whatever oppression or injustice that, it, they're, that they're doing. Um, so in that sense, I think, uh, for example, like Occupy Wall Street certainly had the right idea in the sense of, hey, we need to uh, mobilize, we need to build a movement against the consolidation of, of economic power that's happening in Wall Street, the, the, in the sense that uh, it's, it's driving this country to the brink, something needs to be done, right? So I'm not saying that everything was done perfectly, but I think that the idea that um, as a society, the only way we can actually win change is by forcing it. There was no force about Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street was like a, a bunch of kids who wanted a t-shirt and be seen on TV. That was it. It yeah. wasn't any deeper than mm. that. It was too superficial. The problem is that every I, significant I movement so. has to be, was historically consented to by the power, the power brokers and the elites. That is, I think... Or if they haven't consented to it, eventually that gets taken over or that gets obfuscated with other, um, it gets mission creeped. So Occupy yeah. Wall Street's a good example of this. Or where... like the Germans sending money to uh, Stalin, uh, I'm sorry, to uh, Lenin and Trotsky, uh, bus not busing them in, but training well, the same... them in. To, yeah, uh, according Russia. to certain scholars, the same Wall Street people funded both the communists and the Nazis, but that's speculation. But yeah, that's basically the the problem with mass political movements is that I think this romantic idea that some and even what happened yesterday, I mean, the the reality that people can just get up and pro have a protest movement and change mm. society. I think it's it's a political naivete. It's sort of like a liberal narrative of how power really uh change things when in actuality things are more complicated than that well, there's a lot of externalities sorry about that um, i would say that the liberal narrative tends to be more reformist and more you know slapping mm -hmm. on band-aids and and only enough concessions to prevent like a revolution right so yeah that's true. so that's it, like that's, that's like the liberal narrative is not 
hey, let's overthrow the government to no, no, not overthrow, but but like the protesting and the we can reform things and it's yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, yeah. Have you guys forgotten about the French Revolution and how liberal it was? Well, that, I, I was just going to get to that. The French like, Revolution was the quintessential liberal revolution. Well, Seoul, South it, Korea, 1984, <laughs> was also liberals. I mean, liberals have done the successful revolutions over time, to be honest about it. Very, yeah, because the, the assumptions of... Liberal, uh, yeah. Because of the states of exception that yeah. liberalism has managed... But, like, liberalism but the Arab, being entirely the Arab, run by exceptions. The Arab Spring is a good comparison here because it basically failed in, in, in the Arab world where it was almost impossible for it to happen. But it will come back as a cultural movement, and that's happening already. And I think people are underwriting the actual effects of the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring is the classic liberal revolution, and it failed. Well, I don't know. I think the Arab Spring was totally controlled by the glow in the darks, but that's uh, by the CIA. Mm -hmm. So well, did, didn't we the Arab Spring result that. in? If we're talking about Egypt, and then I know Jules, you had a comment or a question, but just real quick, uh, if we're talking about Egypt. Their first guy who was uh, democratically elected was part of the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, he had his own set of problems that people did not appreciate. So that's the other problem here. Like, if we're talking about, let's get rid of the elite, let's get rid of the establishment, and I know that, uh, Arash, you weren't making exactly that point when you were talking about Occupy Wall Street. You were talking about more like certain piecemeal reforms that could be concentrated on. But again, I think, like, within a lot of these movements, either they get subsumed either they get commercialized, you know, wokenized, uh, or if they are successful, my fear is that it's not going to be just, let's do this one reform. My point is very simple. The Arab Spring will go down to the history books as the death of Islamism and the birth of Arab liberalism. Remember that I said that. That's where it's going to end up. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So my, my point is That's this. what liberal revolutions do, because liberal revolutions are real paradigmatic. But then what Marx deals with is, is it possible then to go deeper than the liberal le revolution? That's why Marx is so interesting. Mm -hmm. my, my point is this, is that power is not going to relinquish power ever. Like ever in history has that ever happened, that they're just going to be like, okay, fine, here you go. That doesn't happen. Right? Gorbachev. Power <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, but Gorbachev was there was other interests involved yeah. there that well, no, it's just that the Soviet Union yeah. was so decadent and so fat and so lazy just <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> that Arash, happens. Arash. That does no, but Arash has a good point. Arash, though, Arash, I, no, but I think you. I think when you, if you're thinking about power, which is a popular word in politics, oh, you have to no, think of yourself. Power. You have to think. You have to think of yourself as playing a chess game against power right just what's that movie the seventh seal with the guy playing the chess game against death so okay so you're playing a chess game against power and you should assume that if that person or that conglomerate or that mm -hmm. faceless other that that thing you can't put your finger on quite but occupy wall street you can say was a representation of this discontent they go something's not right Something's not adding up. There's a lot of imbalance. We got to mobilize. We have to represent our discontent. Let's do something about it. Mm -hmm. But it's an empty move, right? As in, it's very symbolic. But if you want to really think but about what, how what power else, works. What else works, is there? What okay, else is so, there in history? Other okay, than... You Other need than to make good home. moves. You need to make good moves, right? Like if, you, if you're if you horrible with your moves, you're just going to lose every time. If you want to see how power works, okay? You have, you have to, to have the right about, finishing moves. <laughs> no, you don't even need the right finishing moves. You need the right responses on, on very basic things. So 
think about how legislation works right now. Indoor dining is illegal in New York City. Why? Because they don't want the virus spreading in a contained environment, in a closed environment. So what have we done? We have built shacks on the sidewalk that are really small. And so outdoor dining is indoor dining. But because the letter of the law like, is, describes this regulation this way, like that's what you get. So your intentions don't matter for squats when it comes to, okay, this is what we want the outcome to be. Let's write a law and let's hope then that affects the behavior and the changes we want. Right. If you can't even figure out I, how you're just over and over and over again making the same basic mistakes, they will trip you up every time. And it's not that power won't give up power. It's that power is laughing at you while you just keep losing all your pawns and your knights and your bishops and your rooks. And they are just skating around you. And, and you can't even fathom it. And you're just thinking like, you just want to jump right ahead to checkmate and you can't even like get an opening. Like you yeah. can't even build your board. I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. And so my response would be that I don't think we're remotely close to like this sort of revolutionary moment uh, tomorrow. Okay, I'm not that naive as uh, Alexander has pointed out. <laughs> I don't think that, I think these are long-term uh, goals. I would, I would point to, for example, like the civil rights movement, the overthrow of slavery, the overthrow of, you know, various dictators in history, that generally people who are powerless, that's all they got, okay? They have building a mass movement. They don't have anything else, right? We don't have, we don't own the media. We don't own these tech companies. Mm -hmm. We do what we can with what we have to build movements, to overthrow uh, authority and to overthrow power, right? And there, there could be in historic. Hold up, la the last point I'll make. The last sure. point I'll make. I promise, is that historically, right? For example, if you look at the civil rights movement, okay, and yes, there's been movement forward and there's been movement backwards, but it was a concerted movement to make gains in society, to make society more fair and more equitable, and it was in fact the hard work of building movements, right, against against the wishes of those in power, right? Again, power doesn't concede power unless it's forced, right? Like you can't stop a war, yes for example, no. unless you have such a large movement that you're on, your society is on the verge of a revolution that you get the people in power to be like, well, I'd rather just concede than there to be a revolution, right? It has to be literally at that point. And you cannot a build rush. a revolution in one day. It takes it takes time. A rush. You have to build a movement. A rush. Hold on, hold on. I have to I have to respond because I because I think you have to remember that is not the only way that you prevent a war. The reason why Cortez was not wiped out by the Aztecs when they were like outnumbered like 48 to like AOC. 40 thousand right like they're at, like literally cortez wipes out the aztecs how there's like 48 of them there's like dozens of them and you've got like tens of thousands of like scary aztecs okay so how were they able to outmaneuver right power and it's it was with deft positioning right and they were able to present prevent a war because they were able to target the most influential people and just get them to stay in line. 
So you had the people with the most influence were basically focusing on self-preservation. And then over time, they were able to create a favorable climate for them to have an advantage. And then they dominate. So in the same- You have to think in terms of, you don't just need overwhelming force. You don't need to overthrow your opponents. (laughs) You need to outmaneuver them. And if you don't understand the moves they're making, Mm. you will lose 100% of the time. Arash. Mm. So- So I personally think, I mean, the word naive has been thrown out. I personally think that's naive, right? Because why do I think that's naive? Is because people in positions of power are not going to give it up, okay? You're talking about influencing somebody in a position of power to relinquish any power. It's just not going to happen. It's almost never happened in history. Whereas at least there's historical precedent to movement building. There is historical precedent that movements have actually overthrown dictators. There is historical precedent that movements have gained mm. uh, civil rights or made well, society. Real, real, real quick, by the way. I, I agree with Aris. Yes. I, I gotta say I agree with Aris. But that means also the only times the revolutions can happen are at paradigm shifts. So if there's a major Teutonic shift to where power is located, for example, digital, that's what we're interested in these issues right now. The Arash, I agree with you completely. This is the time, not for the revolution yet, probably just for civil war or something now, but over time, but because we're living in the paradigm shift over the next 30 years and we're shifting everything to digital power-wise, that means that all the power structures that were built on pre-digital, on industrial capitalist society, will evaporate. And a lot of people who go towards power and are obsessed with it will go in that direction. And we can then just pull the rug of them. So I agree with you, Arash. This is only possible because power will stay with power. But if you take the rug from underneath power, if you have that possibility, say a new technology arises that changes the rules of the games forever. We moved from rural to urban. We're now moving from urban to digital. That creates unique opportunity. Yeah, but those transitions weren't seamless, though. I mean, there was no, they, no they, of course, revolutions never are seamless. At the point, yeah. yeah, they're bloody like hell. Yeah. Well, as well, far look as at the, the rural uh, peasantry that was forced out of their land into the urbanization. I yeah. mean, but the the thing, the point of contention I would try to make is that, um, well, you look at the civil rights movement. I know this is like a on PC point, but there were factions within the power structure at the time that saw opportunities in there to ingratiate a more sophisticated forms of biopower and allowed certain elements of the civil rights movement to be conducted against rival elites, right? That's that's one part of it, but then there's another part of it, which I wanted to get to. So this is from uh, this book, The Age of Entitlement. Uh, Over decades, Black History Month had taught millions of school kids to think of Rosa Parks as a tired seamstress whose need to rest her weary legs in the white section of a Montagabi, Alabama city bus unleashed a storm of spontaneous power, but she was considerably more than that. Five months before the Matagami bus boycott began, she had attended the Highlander Folk School in Newmarket, Tennessee, an academy that the Congress of Industrial Organizations had set up for training social agitators. She was an organizer of considerable sophistication, one of the intellectuals leaders of the Matagami NAACP chapter. So the reason why I'm bringing that up is just like we were talking before about how Germany uh, during uh, World War One was uh, helping out the Bolsheviks, uh, you know, get power in Russia. Similar things were happening in the United States. It wasn't a, you know, this small grassroots movement. Yeah, that eventually I, I, I overcame think the organic. Power. Yeah, the, the 
the the marketing point of organic movements spontaneously arising up to take power it's kind of like uh, i don't know i i find it sus in a lot of ways but i think also this question of power itself is another interesting one because it seems that the the basic definition that people are throwing around about power being solely power over i'm i'm more of a foucauldian in this sense that power is also a generative force and there's always resistances to power and then power re-territorializes those resistances within its structure and the people that have that are quote-unquote oppressed or people who are being powered over they're equally a part of that network the way that prisoners are equally a part of the network of the guard and the apparatuses of power themselves so i think power is much more complex and the site of power the action of power is the real interesting point in its expression rather than its connotation of just merely being power over there's a power is also a generative force it's more of a will to power in a lot of ways but yeah that's just i know theory cell point but totally agreed <laughs> yeah so guys i think that we are at the point right now where we are agreeing on a lot more than we are disagreeing well what when, do you think well, a good yeah. question i wanted to ask actually lev mm -hmm. is that i think a linchpin of our conversation would be uh what what does the immediate or long-term future look like for example um although i don't know i tend to agree maybe i I hope he's not right, but I think he is. But uh, the the late uh, rest in peace, Mark Fisher, uh, is capitalist realism a thing, or will we arrive at a post capitalist society? What's going to happen in the immediate, and then by immediate I mean the next four years and the long term future? What would society in in your pictures? What would society look like? Sorry, Lev, I cut you off. I'm terrible. Well, uh, no, well, that, that's good why don't we start on. asking the question, do we still live in a capitalist society? I think you got to start there. I, I, I don't buy this sort of Platonist form that capitalism is here forever and will stay. Not at all. Capital is certainly here and it will be around like food is around. But mm -hmm. we no longer live in an agricultural society. I think we agree on that one. And we moved to an industrial capitalist society. I think the internet took over the world in 1998. Now, I think since 2012, according to all the data, attention is now far more important than capital. We should start discussing what does it mean to already live in an attentionist society. And since our society has become more and more attentionist and less and less capitalist, that's when we have deflation pressure in the world economy. That's when we can borrow money just about everywhere for nothing if you have the right connections. Again, connections being attention. I think to think about our world as network dynamical, to think about the problems of where imperial will be, where national will be, where local can be, and, and, and how you can screw these things and how they will work. It's much more interesting to talk about a post, anything post is lazy. Mm -hmm. Every time you use the prefix post to something, you haven't discussed whether you're still with it or whether you moved on to something else. It's like postmodernism post is just lazy, yeah. a lazy term, a lazy labor. That's exactly why none of these guys accused of being postmodernists were even postmodernists. They wouldn't be great in that mm -hmm. case. So I, I think I think post-capitalist societies already happen in the sense that capital is still around, but it's now controlled by attention. So well, well Alexander, what would be your so what would be your hot take on the work of Mark Fisher? If you I'm I'm assuming you I, I, I think some stuff th there's uh, great devotion to Mark, but he's still stuck in this sort of, you're either capitalist or anti-capitalist when you speak about things. Even Shishik is still stuck there. And mm. guys like Shishik, Badu, and Fisher, it's like they're sitting on the side passively waiting for the Messiah to come in. The way I describe <laughs> is the guy's great, but he's waiting for a big dick up his Slovenian ass because he can't, he can't see. <laughs> Have what you ever talked to Zizek, by the way? 
Yeah, no, Shizik, we work together. Yeah, I work. Oh my he's, god, he's great. Wow. But the thing is, he's. I not... paid ninety dollars to see him debate Jordan Peterson. I live tweeted. <laughs> Who do you think came up with that idea? Right. <laughs> is that you? I should credit wow. Peter Lindbergh for that, but yeah, it was it was a sort of Toronto Stockholm whatever combo that came up with that idea. But oh anyway, it takes God. a village. It takes a village. Nice. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Slavos is great. I mean, I'm one of his sons or brothers or whatever. But the fact is that these guys, by attacking capitalism, they're going back into some kind of communist romanticism and they're not really responding. What's lacking in Shishik's philosophy is a deep understanding of digital. This is what I've been saying for the last 25, 30 years. That's why I'm working with that. And, and Catalast, these new guys that are the Shishikians coming out now, they're definitely doing technology because he refused to do it. He didn't get it. And He's like, he's like a mass media person still talking about politics and academia and the mass media, like if that would still be important. He's an old guy. <laughs> this is the most Not fire take criticism anymore. I've heard of Zizek, by the way. This is fucking fire. I can't believe this. Only Break the Rules has delivered this fire. That's so. right. <laughs> yeah, we also okay. have a great comment from Alexander. Uh, yeah. Bard stole Geo's money. <laughs> no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you stole my money in more ways than one. That's so right. That's... And speaking of money, send us super chats and also go to patreon.com slash break the rules. If you become a patron, number one, you are going to get access to uh, the uh, BTR chat. As a patron, you can post in BTR chat. You can post images, stuff like that. And also, you become a percolator. So you have the percolator. Love, do not tell them chat. they can post images. Please. We have no, too, many, too much trouble with that. They have money, they have money riding the on chat. it. They have $5, <laughs> at least $5 riding on that so i think they're gonna follow the rules so anyway Hopefully. if you become well break the rules if you become a 20 dollars patron you are going to get a very beautiful magnet created uh created by my father alexander polyakov look at the textures of these beautiful looking magnets refrigerator magnets you're going to get one every single year and if you become a 30 dollars patron you are going to get a beautiful print from giovanni penichetti look at him go this is exactly as fast as it takes to make one of these beautiful oh, prints. when we're playing and because we right. can't see it but yeah. Yes, and uh, <laughs> this is from the TFW No GF series. And if you become a fifty dollars patron, you are not only get gonna get all those, you are also going to get from Jules a beautifully painted. What is that series called? Warhammer it's called a figurine, bro. It's called a figurine because it's gonna figurine. go from Warhammer to other things. Good. Good, Warhammer. Oh, great. Okay, and you are also going to get for fifty dollars a uh, custom, and uh, this is gonna be very interesting. So a custom printout of whichever logo from uh, that was painted by my father, Alexander Polyakov. So, for example, he painted today's logo with a Rosh and Bard and Afida as a fairy uh, sitting on Bard's uh, head. So if you want a custom printout of that, we're going to make that for you. And not only that, but also with all these other things, you are also going to get a custom magnet. Whatever design you want, my dad's going to make it for you, a custom beautiful wooden refrigerator magnet and on top of that this is how much the 50 dollars patrons get treated well here we go on top of that geo is going to send you a drawing of the uh, bob ross uh well, persuasion a, yeah on on paper a bob ross sketch painting yeah so yes. in the style of bob ross 
Excellent. And that is what you get when you become a patron. And this is why to all the new people who are listening here, this is the kind of quality that you are going to experience and break the rules, become part of the team right now, help us grow and you will not regret it. We are taking over, you know, Trump, Biden, doesn't matter to us. We are growing, we are spreading our wings out, just like the Egyptian uh, sun symbol with the wings spread out, just like the Caduceus. We are reaching the internet enlightenment thanks to wonderful guests like Arash, Alexander, Jules, Geo, Lev, we are all here in the house and we are ready for whatever comes next. So another subject that I wanted to get to was speaking of civil rights. You can say that, sure, with uh, digital, uh, it's going to affect a lot of different things. What it's not going to affect as much is where people live. So let's say you're more of a partier and you want to live somewhere where there are more people who like partying and playing music late at night. So it should be easier for people to have communities that resonate with each other. And if there are people who want more quieter, they could choose quieter communities. And I don't think it's necessarily like, obviously, the more space you have around you, the less noise you're going to hear. And sure, there's like a lot of different things going on today with real estate, but how exactly can we create this kind of society? Maybe it's already in the way created and we don't even need to do anything about it. But is there any way to make people vibe with each other much more so that like how Joe Rogan was talking about, if only I could live around my friends and like people that I care about. It seems like people are extremely isolated today and I want to revert that to more of this whole community type of deal. But I just don't know how to go about that. Well, you can pick Gabbard as the next president in 2024. That would solve it. Not very likely, though. I think we have Mm -hmm. 30 to 50 years ahead of us that are going to be violent and bloody and dark and apocalyptic to a large extent. Uh, I I think the the threat against the planet and against our survival are very real. Not climate change, though. It would just be very costly. But there are other threats like atomic bombs coming out of another 15, 20 countries in the next 10 years sitting on drones, which will be much more problematic. Uh, I don't think we're in control, not at all. And I think that's why we're now going for TV stars as presidents and things, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Certainly so. I'm, 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 I think the apocalypse, I, I think these are apocalyptic times. And I think yesterday with this star- Congress being stormed, that's just the beginning of it. Yeah, well, uh, oh, it's just the beginning. Also, oh. Apocalypse no, also means uh, to reveal something <laughs> that was hidden before. So when it yeah. comes to, uh, like, I don't know. I am of two minds when it comes to how much is really like the juicy stuff, the good stuff that's been hidden from us as far as secret technology, you know, so we don't need to use this oil, stuff like that. I don't know. I am totally amiss when it comes to that. But I wonder if there are certain things that have been hinted at time and time again that uh, we are kind of uh, being veiled away from. And with this quote-unquote apocalypse, maybe some of us who are knowledgeable about this will be able to utilize certain things that other people just aren't aware of and be able to be more successful. Well, we will have the technologies, right? There will be technological explosion over the next 20 years. You will have your electric cars and everything, at least if you're fortunate. The elite will certainly go for some kind of communism, but communism will not arrive for the masses. Communism will be elitist and voluntary. That's for sure. But that's the elite. For the vast majority of people, I think psychiatry is a good place to go to find them over the next 20 years. I mean, we're basically putting pills into our systems all the time. That's why I think the euphoria script is not only about 90-year-old Instagram addicts, it's really about the future. I think the people growing up in euphoria right now are going to be 
in that state and have drug problems, all kinds of shit over the next 30 And months. notice how th- like therapy speak has invaded the consciousness of Zoomers. And now everyone's telling each other to go to therapy. It's, it's like, again, to bring up Michel Foucault, this is again, another uh, power within the societies of control. It is the medicalization of power. And I could get all into this with the lockdowns, but that's- Totally great. Yeah. 100% therapy addicts, 100% addiction addicts. We're all gonna see each other's addicts 10 years from now. The system mm. is working towards making us, seeing ourselves as addicts. Facebook exactly. did not. Facebook did not employ psychologists to make you happy. They employed psychologists to make you addicted to Facebook, because addiction is attention, and attentionalism is exactly where we're heading. So to, that, to Love's claimed it for the last twenty-five years. To, to Love's right. point, I think that um, you know, human humans weren't meant to be so atomized, right? So I think there's a lot to what you're saying. Um, you know, part of what I'm writing about in my book is is about human nature and how we evolved as a social species. And, and the societies that we have today are just so alienating uh, and so atomizing that we just crave that connection, right? I mean, yeah, how amazing would it be to feel that sense of community, to, to feel that social esteem, to live among your peers, you know, the people who, who you may share interests with or, or uh, you know, who you love and, and love to spend time with, right? I think, I think these are all things, um, and, and just even going back to the previous question about like, what, what does the next, you know, four years, what does the next eight years or 12 years look like? You know, I think for me personally, right? And the reason I'm here is to raise consciousness that it doesn't have to be this way, right? I mean, if there's one message I'm trying to get across, is that we can run society in a more fulfilling way where our human most basic human needs right are met like freedom right the ability to to have a say in in the things that affect our lives to feel connected to each other to not be so torn apart by you know facebook atomization and consumerization and all this bullshit right that we can strive to something better and that if we agree, right? Which I think even at the beginning, we said, hey, the more decentralization we go, the more, you know, fair we go, X, Y, and Z, whatever that, whatever it is, right? The more we take our society in that direction, the better, but we better do it quick, right? Because I think everybody here would agree, we don't have a lot of time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, capitalism is destructive, especially the way it, it's, it's uh, mechanisms are working this very day, right? We got environmental degradation. We got uh, international hostilities, uh, the very real threat of nuclear wars. I mean, this is not a world where I would want my children or grandchildren to, to live in. And I don't think any of us do, right? So unless we, we get to a better place and we raise consciousness that, hey, we can do better than this. And then the second step is what we talked about earlier as well is, well, then how do we move in that direction? And maybe we don't have all those answers, but I sure as hell know that we better start thinking about it and talking about it. Do you think, yeah. and this is kind of a controversial take, uh, but do you think 
it makes sense what uh, Rand Paul was uh, talking about. This was uh, back in the day when he was talking about the 1964 Civil Rights Act and pointed out that while he agrees with pretty much all the articles, the one that he does not agree with was the one that basically gets rid of or got rid of now uh, freedom of association which was inherent in the First Amendment freedom of assembly. And do you think that certain legal structures that were created, you know, for the good to, you know, to have uh, more civil rights and things of that nature may have created something that maybe right now we're not seeing that much of a uh, disastrous effect of, but in the future may kind of create a favelae society where people are stuck together who may not necessarily want to you know, be there with each other? Or am I reading too much into it and it's all going to work out and this is more of a boogeyman well, that's I not that relevant? Certainly in any good society, people should be free to leave any association they want to leave or want to leave. They should be free to leave. Um, I mean, that that I think is, is at least should be obvious that we should not be forced into a community that uh, we're not happy with or fulfilled in or whatever. So... Um, but it also ties. It can like be, but it can be. But hold like on, it can be a semantic thing because let's say you're free to leave America, but let's say in 15 years, no other country would allow Americans in, right? <laughs> so you're free in America, but you physically can't go anywhere else. So it's a semantic thing. But that, so that's just not like very you, likely. You know, that's not if, very if, likely if, at all. No, I, I don't mean that. I don't Jimmy mean Kimmel, like that. If you're Jimmy yeah. Kimmel. Like if you're Jimmy Kimmel, you have a contract to be a show host five days a week. And I don't know his agreement, but there could be like a severe penalty for like if he just didn't show up one day, didn't let anybody know, or he just said, mm -hmm. I quit. I don't want to do this anymore. Like there, there are ways when they could claim damages. We left the topic completely. Yeah, Jules, that's not, that's not what I was talking completely. about. What I mean more is, let's say, the example of, and I don't remember if he won that lawsuit or not, but there was that, uh, uh, that baker who did not want to bake the gay cake. Or there was the example of states that did not want to have the uh, transgender uh, bathrooms or did not want transgender people to go into the uh, female bathroom. So these are examples of civil rights laws interfering in, you know, what would be like the decisions of states or the decisions of individuals based on, you know, there not being this freedom of association. I'm free to associate with who I want. I'm free to do business with who I want. And these are like small examples. Like these aren't like dystopic end of the world examples that I just brought forth here. But I wonder if in the future it may become more dystopic using these civil rights laws. No, I think America has debated this enough already and you're getting stuck in the wrong place. I think the most important thing to do in 2020, say you got kids and got to raise your kids, is like what you learned from the 2010s was that if you stay within an echo chamber, you get stupid. Okay, you, you stay with your own tribe. They all think alike and, and, and you, you, you get, you know, whatever you think is just reinforced all the time, but you get stupid. So antagony is a word I propose all the time. You, you got to go actively outside of your algorithms and outside of your social circles and find people who disagree with you. But if you do, 
the reward is not moral. The reward is actually beneficial in intelligent sense because you get more intelligent. Now, I think that's the easiest thing in the world to teach a kid today because kids have discovered that echo chambers is what their parents could stuck with and they got stuck with. And they don't want to be inside those echo chambers any longer. They, they understand, if they're smart, they understand that if I challenge myself all the time, that is exactly what intelligence mm -hmm. is. Now, once you look at that perspective, which is way more important, that's like a kid telling his mom, will you stop using fucking Instagram when you raise us? We don't want to be photographed all the time to your lady friends as if we were accessories. We want to be children, right? When kids react that way, they're outside of the echo chamber. That's mm. what I'm looking for right now. These sort of extreme examples of the most extreme people being in the most extreme positions in relation to other most extreme people in a society mm. like America are just debated constant in America. They're just hypothetical, symbolic well, issues. Well, there are non-hypotheticals, nothing, nothing to do with reality. I don't think there are non-hypotheticals that I've thought of right now. So like in Sweden, and you could tell me if this is a big problem or not, where here in America, people- We don't even debate whether a trans person or a non-trans no, person- No, no, I don't mean that. No, I'm it's a silly about, question. I'm talking about the migrants. Question. No, I'm talking about the migrant situation there. So if people are living together and doing business with people, these youths that are causing a lot more trouble than uh, the other youths in the neighborhood used to, that is, to me, at least an example of uh, not we a great don't, situation. We don't, have a, we don't have a migration problem. So we have an integration problem in Sweden. We have a problem with it. Many of the people who came here came from war and mm. were distraught and were not prepared to live in a highly sophisticated post-capitalist society like Sweden. That was the problem. I'm totally pro-immigration in Sweden. Anybody who comes to this country and has a bag of money and a job should get in right away without any opposition. But if people come here and drag a whole family of 18 people with them and none of them is ready to work in our kind of a society, Society, that is problematic when you're letting go because all the kids are going to be criminals within a generation. That is, well, think that is, that is an integration problem. It's not migrating people have always been winners. Today, if you look at the world map, the five mm. categories of people that the ultimate winners are exiled Persians, exiled Indians, exiled Chinese, exiled Nigerians. Now, if you go anywhere in the world, they're winners. They're overachievers. That's why exile Nigerians coming to America make four times more money than Afro-Americans do because they don't get stuck with the whole slavery story. They're proud of themselves and they work hard. That and is always that we, the recipe for success. I'm pro-migration. I really hope that we are at the point here in America, let's say, where people would be able to have an open door policy to anybody from anywhere as long as they are able to integrate well. My problem, though, is the opposite, where you would have, like you said, people coming in with a culture that is not integrated well, and you have people living in a low trust society now. And that, to me, is the opposite of that's how you kill us. Yes, that's how you kill a society. And so, so all I'm saying here is that if we're talking about the Civil Rights uh, Act of 1964, that one part of it, the freedom of association part, maybe it helped as far as now at least people could accept people regardless of where they come from. But on the flip side, now it's a lot harder for people to say, you know what, we are going to accept people who are going to be more like us culturally. Uh, you know, like, sure, we'll accept people who aren't looking like us, but we'll accept people who are like us culturally. Where right now, you can't even do that. You know, like, you still have to... It's it's a bad situation. I just don't know what I called. I call that bad membranics. So essentially, it works this way, just like a life form or a town 
or, or, or any sort of fortress, right? It, it's, it's a sphere. It's got a membrane around it. Now, the guy you put in charge of the membrane, what goes in and what goes out of the system, you want nutrition in, you want shit out. Now, anybody sits there has to be the most intelligent, most educated, most wisest person you got in your community. If you put a fucking idiot there, you have a major problem. And sooner or later, your culture will go down. <laughs> this is one of the most important aspects of a culture because any culture interacts with the outside world. And in empires, at least, they built nations within an empire where the empire, at least, is supposed to be the structure that regulates trade and migration between the different nations. And that has one benefit. It means the different nations within the empire have to compete with one another for being a nice place to live. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad idea at all. States in America are supposed to do that. And Americans move from one state to the next. That's one of the great benefits of America. If you don't like in Michigan, you move to Arizona. Okay. But Th that works and, and it's good in the sense that they actually they're competing for 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 providing people with their own self-power and uh, self-empowerment and, and being able to do what they want in that territory mm. where they're located. Yeah, well, with Americans, I think I agree. It is better. I'm, I don't know how it is in Sweden. I think that in England, like working class English people, they have it rough with a lot of the uh, migration there of uh, people from Pakistan and, you know, with all the grooming gangs that have been talked about. Again, it's not that I'm saying that this is the biggest thing that's happening there, but I don't want to discount that either. And I don't want to discount those girls that were taken, uh, you know, by those uh, by those Pakistani gangs. Yeah, so, but that was an extreme example. You know yeah. what? The kids from Bangladesh and the kids from Nigeria that live in London are way more overachievers than British kids are. And that's their middle-class kids. The problem in Britain is that the British working class were left behind. They never got educated. And that's how Britain mm. has the biggest class differences in Europe. The difference yeah, between but, London and Blackpool is the biggest difference between wealth within the entire European Union now before Brexit, Brexit happened. That is a problem the English have to solve within themselves. But also, that, again, the migrant crisis was another problem uh, caused by American imperial action in the Middle East, which is yeah. another overlooked aspect of it as well. So, Oh, Gio, there was also the uh, IQ shredder that I remember somebody mentioning. Oh, I'm still uh, not sure Spangel what that is. Oh, yeah. I forget. In the chat, you mean? Well, no, not in the chat, but I remember in earlier conversations, because when uh, oh, Bart, the, you were talking about uh, having uh, context, open, open uh, migration. Which I am uh, pretty much for <clears throat> this mention of the IQ shredder. It's something that I don't understand, but that was talked about as being something uh, to make people think twice about that notion. Is there any way that you could explain it? Because I'm curious yeah, about what. Well, that the is. IQ shredder was um, created by Spandrel, but it was also developed by Nick Land, where essentially, like, he used Singapore as the example where, in a, given high tech societies with. Um, certain command economies by authoritarian governments such as Singapore, you have a situation where they can attract the best and brightest people onto the upper classes, but then through specialization, through uh, compartmentalization of technology and so forth, what ends up happening is you have a situation where the specialization is only held, knowledge is only held in, in the hands of a select few elite people. But the problem is that you have, because of technology, you have a situation where the vast majority of people uh, have been looted of the people who are the best and brightest. So the underclasses, which will become the permanent uh, underclasses, will be robbed of their potential um, in terms of IQ. But also with technology, that will drive uh, people to specialize knowledge in such a way that only the very select few has the potential to uh, know what's going on at any given time. But then eventually what happens is because more higher IQ, upper class people tend to have less children. You have a situation where 
uh, IQ will exponentially drop as the people who have the highest amount of IQ in society uh, reproduce less and less. And the vast majority of people, because of technology atrophying natural abilities and making life uh, more um, more like structured and so forth, uh, therefore the vast majority of people will get idiocracy. In other words, this is like the plot line of idiocracy. And uh, fewer and fewer people will have the know-how and the null and the tech to actually um, innovate in society or know what's going on at any given time in terms of how these various complex systems work. So that's like Spandrel's concept of the IQ shredder. And that is, a, I think, a very good potential. I don't think IQ works exactly that way, but it is true that... I would love Russia- to retire the IQ slang. Like, if we're going to... like, I oh, would sure, rather well, be inscrutable in different ways because it's just... Sure, the, no. that's well, maybe the problem we can get Spandrel on one day. It's like, yeah. how do we get the coolest people to create an in-group instead of the terminally, like, ineffectual... Well, we don't have to use the word IQ, but I'm just saying, like, the argument still applies, what Gio is talking about, this uh, lowering of whatever you want to call, whatever quality you want to call here. But, but that is another, unless, but that would be an argument Because the, the IQ thing, though, I think imposes reality in a way that people underestimate, in the same way astrology does or pop psychology. I, oh, I, I don't know. It's I, not I like just that. Wanna, hold on. I just want to make sure, Arash, you, you had a, Too much a of comment a about it. Okay. I was just going to say that, um, I mean, it's, it's by design, of course, it's, it's like control, right? So if you build people specializing in this cog, and it's a different set of people specializing in this cog, they don't know how their cogs work in relation yeah. to the other cogs, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how, that's the type of educational system you get in authoritarian societies, right? And you see a lot of it here in the US as well. There's so much specialization oftentimes where people might be engineering some, you know, minute part of a, of a subpart, uh, not realizing that it's, you know, going to be put together to, for their own self-destruction at some point. Um, but, but a Spandrel's idea here of the IQ shredder, if there was no immigration at all, would it play out any differently? That's what but I'm that, that was going to say, Lev, it's an argument against, in some ways, it's an argument against your merit-based immigration policy system, because essentially what you're saying is that, um, you you want to like people that advocate like for example like neocons that advocate this who are they 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 do this in a way when they don't realize that you're robbing the best and brightest people from these developing nations of the people that could potentially help their societies and lead them into a better future if they're all going to if because the incentive to move to North America or Europe and so forth is so great or Singapore or wherever that um. They, they don't really they're really not incentivized to fix the problems within their own nations well that's uh, that's have... that's incorrect that's incorrect because you get remittances so yeah you do get have, remitt- that you is got true. millions you got millions yeah. of indians who left india and went to europe and north america and they then came back and became an elite in india and now they're taking over american tech i mean india is the perfect example that says that that theory is completely wrong people people don't migrate on boats any longer and can never return it, it's all 
airlines now. So like you, you go to India and America, stay in America a few years, then you possibly move back to India or your kids might even go back to India and then you go back to America and they become bicultural and then they're really successful. I am, the problem I am is- a strong proponent of cosmopolitanism. I think IQ tests measure nothing but the capacity to make an IQ test. They're ridiculous. Now, human beings are way more than intelligent. They're also have to be transcendent. They have to aspire. They have to have drive. None of those things are measured in stupid IQ tests. That's what men Yeah, that, that's true. Nobody wants to sleep with Mensa guys, get over mm-hmm. it. So, huh. no, so the, the cosmo- problem- cosmopolitanism, do culture studies instead. Instead of focusing on these minor things, and by the way, there are cultures that where the wealthy people are the only ones of kids and poor people can't afford it. South Korea and Sweden are two examples. That also makes your th- this theory wrong. But at the end of the day, cosmopolitanism is that we know for a fact the Silk Route was the most successful construction ever done until the Mongols came around and worked wonderfully. For 3,000 years, it created more prosperity, more wealth, and more distributed power than anything we ever invented. So trade routes are key to wealth and trade routes are key to people being happy. And trade routes are key to people traveling and seeing other cultures and getting immersed in other cultures. And, and this is probably, Arash agrees with me, people are not afraid of strangers unless they're trained to be afraid of strangers. So that is why these cosmopolitan places, we should study them more like cities like Istanbul, how does Istanbul work for like thousands of years on how they become successful. These cosmopoles have worked for thousands of years. And when I argue with nationalists here in Europe, I always said, well, your nation has been around for what, 300 years or something? I know cities like Rome and Cairo and Xi'an in China have been around for thousands of years. The cities are way more interesting. And this is the case for cosmopolitanism and I think it's also a case that we can't do ecotopianism and save the planet unless we also in parallel become cosmopolitan. And Singapore works because people have moved there from all over the place. So Singapore is like a trade route center for Indians and Chinese and Americans and the Europeans. And of course, it is the capital of Southeast Asia. That's why it's so yeah. damn prosperous. Yeah, the problem nowadays is that what's happening is that we're seeing uh, the rise of a very rootless political class among all of these nations that are largely educated in the West and then go back to their host nations, for example, the Chinese princelings, where they have more in common with each other than they do the peoples of their own nations. And yeah. by the way, to that person in the chat, I do know my shit. I'm sorry. I know I like to name drop a lot, but uh, I wasted a lot of years in university. So <laughs> don't worry about it. I'm pro name dropping, including dropping all your names. There you go. And by the way, let's but go to no, Super but Chat. Yeah, but that's the oh, problem, okay. I think, is that, you know, we're seeing this rise of a political autonomous political class that has no interest in or very few, inten- uh, very few tangible interests in the p- nations of their origin. They have more in common with each other than they do average people. So I, I get what you're, but I'm getting you're saying cosmopolitan is more of an ancient force than I think like uh, a lot of people mm. on the right uh, in my sphere like to think of it as but yeah. it still had a certain kind of style if we're talking about maybe i'm wrong here maybe it was like all over the place but it seems like ancient rome or ancient greece or like any cosmopolitan city had its own flavor the fear that people have today whether it's justified or not is that i go to new york i'll go to tokyo and 100 years from now they'll both resemble each other and they'll both have these architectural monstrosities and there's not going to be anything cultural about any of these cosmopolitan cities anymore. no no i don't think that i think that's why arash and i do philosophical work about decentralization is a sexy idea and if Athena would still be here today, when she's learning architecture today, she's learning not to build standard because actually we know that local is more important in the sense that if you're going to travel, you don't want Tokyo, New York to look the same. That was during the industrial age. 
we were both cities that all look the same. Now we have so many ideals. People are leading Manuel de Lund at Princeton before they do architecture these days. You, you lead Deleuze before you do architecture these days. I mean, you, 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 you no longer think of yourself as a king who's supposed to dictate how people should live their lives any longer. You're much more interesting. Why don't I build something where I figure out how people actually will live, they will then live that way, and then I redesign it five years later so people feel it's more humane. We are yeah. getting much closer to understanding how people want to live, and we are building accordingly, and we're also building more locally, you know, because it's more interesting it's like you want you don't want to have 50 rights that are all the same at disneyland you want to have 50 different rights and because we live increasingly in the traveling touristy world and we will again after the corona we'll travel more than ever and traveling is experience and experience gives attention so it's an incredibly important part of tertiary society no i don't think that's the case at all i think we'll have more extreme uh, you know experimental forms of locality well, just just a real quick aside here about the extremes is if uh, you look at the ancient Egyptian, um, uh, the columns, they have these flower things on it, like palm trees or whatever. They're supposed to be like these flat tongue looking things that are sticking out. They look very attractive. They look different from the Greek ones and they look different from the Roman ones, but they still have this sense of sacred geometry. My big concern is like, oh, it's not that big of a concern, but it's like, if we have people just experimenting everywhere, that's great, that's beautiful. But if they're going to impose their own idea of, oh, why don't I make this wacky structure and have people live with it, even if it may, you know, fit people's expectations as far as a habitat, it may still throw people off psychologically if it's going to look like some weird monstrosity that's going to be very uh, antithetical to sacred geometry and humanity. I well, thank good really, for them because I hate sacred to... geometry already. I get bored with it. Right, and it's okay, also way fine, less. Fine. Creativity like, is not have... building the expected. That's exactly um, what's not creative. Yeah, yeah standard. That is what if, standard is. Yeah, I see your point. If you live in France and you're paying high taxes, and then suddenly you see a giant butt plug outside the Louvre, and you're being told it's a Christmas tree, like I understand having a qualm with that <laughs> because, in a way, you've been without any choice. You've been extorted to participate in funding something that you find like displeasing to your senses but if it comes to like you want to regulate your own cul-de-sac and you're you don't want someone to paint their door red because it oh, might yeah, affect yeah. Uh, the house value or someone's not mowing their lawn and it oh, looks like, the like, like a jungle out there and then suddenly that's affecting the house value that's a dip th those are different scale problems right wait so jules you don't like jeff Koons? one size fits all so i'm gonna jeff coon i'm jeff coons that's right jeff coons is like whatever i i respect <laughs> the fucking grift i respect the hustle i like, think i, I man, respect his hustle i respect million dollar thing like Mm. Jeff Koons is fantastic. He was fantastic. But the, the thing is this, the idea that art should be pleasing to the senses died in 1895. Get yeah. over it. I mean, With it's Goya, so exactly. boring. Yeah, it's just no. boring. It's just banal, right? So creativity cannot be banal. It can, mm. that's, that's exactly what standardization is. No, I, I mean, I'm totally for a more pluralistic world and I think it will happen. I think yeah. that's one of the benefits. That's why I'm talking about a dark renaissance. That meaning we're gonna have the middle ages. It's gonna be violent, possibly bloody. It's a paradigm shift on a massive scale. We have not figured out yet what's gonna be imperial, what's gonna be national, what has to be local. All these different spheres we're working with at the moment is incredibly difficult to go through and people are terrified of the enormous complexity being thrown into but for artists 
This is a golden age. This we, is a golden. Oh, I've I've had more we content to paint we have, we have a within the last few days than any time else. And while well, the last four years has been a golden age of mining images to paint in terms of social realism as a painter myself. So yeah. You're right. Okay. So so we got the twenty twenties is all about Netflix and HBO and these channels. The thing is that a lot of what they'll put out they'll be junk. But we're going to see amazing quality of really intense storytelling over the next 10 years and new genres we never thought could happen. I think if you're a script writer today writing good scripts, say you're Sam Henderson who did Euphoria, for example, you're in for a ride. I mean, because the money being thrown right now at, at sort of qualitative cultural production around the world and the fact that Americans are finally watching foreign storytelling and are okay with subtitles, which the rest of us always were. That's how you learn other languages to begin with. And the fact that say a Norwegian dark, dark, you know, uh, crime thing can be hit in America. This is so fucking liberating. You can be naked and nude and fucking swear finally in America. Mm. It's just, that is cultural. That is dark renaissance to me. I think the 2020s are golden in this sense. People will party like hell and Corona's over. They take tons of drugs. They be like euphoria, but they oh will God. also watch. And you can still be free reflect. from desire. Lev, Lev thinks, oh my God. That yeah, means yeah, not yeah, yeah, free yeah. From yeah. Desire. It's like, yeah, dude, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we have, village. we have a comment. Jules, Jules, you look like the psychopath from euphoria, but you got the name of the transcript. <laughs> You're fantastic. <laughs> How did that you, happen? Thank you. Well, I don't know why. Well, they now didn't we put can get New there. Japan Pro Wrestling the in the call. states. Oh yeah! <laughs> By the way, guys, yeah. we got to go to super chats, and don't forget to send more super chats while I'm reading these. The first one, though, this is not a super chat, but I think it's a relevant comment to what we were just talking about. This is from Infowarlock. Modern architecture is no longer made to endure. It's made to be transient and disposable. Now, maybe that's a good thing, depending on uh, how you look at it. But uh, that's a lie. That's just a cliche. It's boring. Next question. Okay, next question. There are, there's go. great modern architecture. There's terrible modern architecture as always. Yeah. You know, but yeah. Build more. Build more. Take less stuff. You know, what I want to do is to ban the idea that people could take everything to court that they don't like. That's exactly, mm. you know, the, we, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, when they built the new road, when you go into the bridge, it costs more to build it than to build the entire bridge. 40 years ago. Why? Because people are taking everything to court in America. And by taking everything to court, you never build anything. That's called castration. I completely also agree. Castration. So, okay, so here we <laughs> go. We also have a comment from Iran for Arash. Uh, but before that, let me get to the super chats. Dream Radio donated 20, no, not two Canadian dollars. Man, that's uh, two Canadian dollars. Dwarf Fortress is good at making art, not politic. I'm not exactly sure what that... I know what Dwarf Fortress is, but I'm not exactly sure what that means. Uh, Pulsating Shadow, 639. I'd love to see meme analysis in conversation with Bard. I think Bard would crush Chris's antagonism towards the Jungian digital anima, Boogie Woman. Boogie Woman. Imagine if Boogie was a woman. For for okay anyway well well when Frank Castle gets through with them but yeah. <laughs> oh god yeah the sissification and bimification okay and lastly over here Mehran's comment uh, for Arash Lev should ask Arash what measures should be taken by civil societies to bring corporations to justice that would be a good start for the for a political discussion on how a Western world state should look like well I think um. Just like in the previous, you know, conversations we had with regards to making change, I think organizing, 
you know, usually uh, people who are not in positions of power, their only power and their only access to power is uh, themselves and organizing with others, right? Uh, so build movements, organize with your workers if, uh, if there's things that, um, that are unfair or unjust. Sounds good. And guys, I think this is pretty much the end. Are there any final thoughts, uh, Arash, Alexander, Gio, Jules? I, I just want to say to Mehran, who had some questions in there, that he can contact me in person because he comes back with your journey questions. Yes, uh, I'd love to discuss the future Persian Empire with Arash Kolai next time I get a chance to do that. But it's a completely different topic compared to the one. Yes. Today. Well, I want to get Georgiani on and have you versus Georgiani. I think that would be a lot of fun. That would be hilarious since we've known each other now for over 30 years. It's, about, yes. it's bound to happen. Yeah. It is about to happen. Well, so guys, he's, a, he's a Gnostic and I'm not. That's the big difference. And Maron knows that. It's going to be so much fun. So, yeah. guys, I want to thank everybody for doing this. We are blowing up right now thanks to your help. We are at 2,500 and more subscribers now, all thanks to your participation in this thing, growing this thing. Arash, such a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, my friend, for coming here. Same thank thing, you. Alexander. Thank you so much. Geo, Jules. You guys are uh, legends. Yeah. So are you, and I name drop you the rest of my life. Woo! <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Likewise. All right. Thank this you all. Big love. Big yes. love. This it's is been the great. End. Another great edition. Don't forget to subscribe. Everybody who is watching this right now, the 79 people, subscribe right now, and you will not regret it. I love you all. We love you all. And I hope that you all are going to prosper. And oh, yeah, yeah, that, I saw that already. Mwah! Good night, everybody. Good night and good